it was it was intense. Now that was when that was like right before we got out of Kawi, right? Yes, and I actually I chased them too. This was badass. So we have this vehicle checkpoint and out of nowhere and it comes in on the radio and then there are Amtrak tanks, the amphibious tanks just flying over the Euphrates River. I didn't know it. We were literally, I was standing on top of an ID that they paved underneath the asphalt. So as soon as that Humvee pulled away and I'm stepping off of the road, they blew it. I took my corpsman and I sat him in this unique position while we were doing a vehicle checkpoint. And then as I'm stepping out of it and my hand is still in the handle, snap, snap, snap. And like I convinced myself, hey, I'm, I'm probably not going to come back. So make this worth it. Holy shit, it rocked my world. The first one was an elephant laying on a, a tar road, no face. ISIS in Africa, up to 40% of their operations, terrorist activities are funded off the illegal trade of elephants and rhinos. They are poaching animals to kill humans. We arrested the poaching network responsible for 18,000 unaccounted elephants in one year. If they catch a park ranger, they will torture them. They'll kill their family, everything. The poachers? Yep. The Chinese government was busted smuggling ivory out in diplomatic pouches off the coast and taking it home. I had a bounty on my freaking head by these guys. Really? Yeah. How'd that happen? Because we were affecting their bottom line. And then the guy that took my place when I had to come back to the States for an illness, they assassinated cooking everybody i am joined in the bunker today by my friend ryan tate the founder of vetpol vetpol is an organization of military veterans who are fighting on the front lines of the war against wildlife in africa and no i'm not talking about fighting against hunters for those of you who are unaware there are international organizations including criminal syndicates terrorist groups and foreign governments who are funding the illegal killing of beautiful exotic creatures like elephants and rhinos rendering them endangered the work that ryan and his team at vetpol does on the ground every day in africa in concert with several governments around the african continent is absolutely incredible and in the eight years of their existence they have lost zero animals across the thousands of acres of land that they patrol it is unbelievable work and most importantly in a time where we're fighting about every goddamn thing known to man this is something that we all can get behind so I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and thank you to Ryan for coming in and telling his story. Anyway, if you are on YouTube right now, please hit that subscribe button, hit that like button on the video, and as always, would love to hear from you down in the video comment section as well. To everyone who has been sharing these episodes around with their friends and on social media, Thank you. It's the best help we can get. I really, really appreciate it. Let's keep that going. To everyone who is listening on Apple or Spotify right now, thank you for checking out the show over there. If you haven't already, please be sure to leave a five-star review on either one of those platforms as that is a huge, huge help to the show. That said, you know what it is. I'm Julian Dory. This is Trendafire. And please welcome my friend, Ryan Tate. Well, listen, man, thank you so much for coming in. 
I've been really, really excited about this one. Shoot, man. Thanks for having me. Of course. I appreciate it. I got a call from your guy, Andy Johnson, the on man. the board. I thought it was like a fake email, and then I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, this kind of looks real. And then he hit me up right away. He's like, Julian, you have to talk to my man, Ryan. He's running this great company. We do all the marketing for them. It's such a great cause. And I'm like... <laughs> I'm already in. I just tell me about it. That guy's it my hero, man. He's amazing. Dude, he's been on our board for, I don't know, year and a half now. Totally elevated us to a status I didn't even understand until he came on board. Uh, honestly, the kindest person in the world, too. That guy would literally take a bullet to the face for an animal. I believe it. The, yeah. way, the way he talked about it and like the way he described it. I also do think things sound smarter and cooler when British people are doing it. But like way cooler. The way he was doing it, like he's explaining to me these videos I haven't even seen yet, and I have a tear in my eye listening to it because yep. this is somebody in his case who grew up loving animals, like loved everything about them, and now you know has had a lot of success and is trying to do whatever he can on his end to help great causes. I, I love that. Yeah, he was a donor of ours too to start. He would donate monthly and then he reached out to me and i never check my linkedin stuff which is terrible i need to check it more randomly checked my linkedin and i've got this message from andy and he says hey i've been donating you know for a couple of years monthly it's i give what i can but um, this is what i do and i think i can help you on a larger scale so we did a phone call and i'm like this is a godsend i mean yes you can help us <laughs> so, that's awesome yeah and by the way i do want to know we have a very full studio today yeah. Got Mr. Paul Rosalie over here. Legend. Say what's up. And we got Justin. What's your last name, Justin? Wiskowski. Wisk that was, that was yeah. hard. Well, how do you say that? Yeah. Alphabet. It's Vishkovsky, actually. Vishkovsky. Yeah, yeah. Justin Vishkovsky. That's what I'm going to say. I didn't know That's that. good. Yeah. Yeah. It's got some language to it. So you are the team leader on the ground for Vet Paul, which we're going to talk all about, people. This is an amazing organization and the story is insane. But you're the team leader over in South Africa? I am. All right, yeah. Cool. We'll have you on a podcast in the future for sure. Awesome. I'm already on a podcast. Yeah, yeah, you're here. You're already here. You can't see him on the camera, but he's here. And then Paul over here, I mean, is it like a good idea to get eaten by an anaconda? Like what got in your head uh, to want to do that? Worst idea I ever had. <laughs> worst decision of my life. <laughs> Paul hosted a show. It was called Eaten Alive, right? Uh, it was. It was called Eaten Alive, and they told me that it would help me protect the Amazon rainforest, which is what my actual mission is, and it was a bad decision. Okay, we'll, we'll talk. Uh, he's coming in in a couple months, so we'll talk about that one on a podcast for sure. But this is the guy over here protecting the Amazon rainforest, and the guy over here is helping conserve, well, the two guys over here are helping conserve all of the wildlife over in Africa, which is a very crazy underworld, very sad underworld too. We're going to talk all about it today. But just to get things rolling off so that we... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We can get in there. Can you tell us all a little bit about where you're from and, and how this journey landed on you suddenly being the founder of this wonderful African organization to help the wildlife? Sure. How much time you got? We got all day, man. <laughs> uh, so my name is Ryan Tate. I'm the president and founder of VETPAL, which stands for Veterans Empowered to Protect African Wildlife. I grew up in Tampa, Florida originally. Um, 
left for the Marine Corps right out of high school. Um, I was in high school for 9-11. So um, mm. I think that was probably my first real exposure to trauma, you know, trauma that I didn't know about, at least, you know. Um, How old were you when that happened? 16. And I was in an English class, Miss Rodriguez, her English class. Um, and uh, she was always the cool teacher because her boyfriend at the time was Warwick Dunn, the, uh, the running back for the box. Yeah. 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 yeah, legend. Um, uh, anyway, so I was in her, her class. I was a TA, a teacher's assistant. And she used to have me prank call him as a joke. And so I was prank calling Warwick Dunn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was awkward when I met him in person. I was scared shitless. Uh, <laughs> but, but anyways, and then all of a sudden a teacher busts in the door uh, from the portable uh, next to her classroom. He's like, have you seen what happened to the World Trade Center? Freaking out. The guy looked like he saw a ghost. And um, he said, flip on the TV. And she flipped it on. And there it is. And boom, the second plane hits. And I like couldn't wrap my head around what's what was happening. It was just nuts like people are actually dying in those buildings and i'm watching this and i had always wanted to go into the military um i was in part of uh, i wasn't in like a high school rotc because i don't know i just you know um, i didn't want to wear the the uniforms to school and stuff but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh they're good kids don't get me wrong um but i was in this this uh one week in a month like navy program where I would go and learn, you know, about the military, it gave me some structure. Um, and, uh, I went to this boot camp they do two weeks out of the year so that I could elevate to the next level. And to start, there were some Navy reser reservists, they were retired guys that were hazing us and, you know, just being total dicks. Um, and then these Marines came in that were active duty down at McDill Air Force Base. So there's SOCOM and CENTCOM there. It's a very important base. So these are some big dogs, and the way they came in, their shoulders back, chest out, the way they talked, you could just feel the confidence, and the uniforms were definitely cooler. And that I helps. said, yeah, <laughs> it definitely helps. I'm one of those guys where I order off the menu if I see a picture. So, mm -hmm. you know. I feel you. So, yep, I got it right there. And I said, I want to be that one day. And I had no idea. I didn't know much about the Marine Corps. I, I was the idiot that asked, so where do, what academy do the Marines go to? Where's the Marine Academy? And all the kids laugh like I'm a dumbass, but I didn't know. And, um, but anyway, so I w still wasn't sure what I wanted to do because the Marines were tough. But when I saw 9-11 in that classroom, I'm like, that's it. I got to go. We're going to war. And I, you know, I was that kid that I want to go fight for my country. And, um, so the next week I went in, I got my parents to sign um, the uh, early entry program. So sign mm. me up at 16, but I wait till I'm 18 or till I graduate high school to go. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, a lot of kids that are signing up, you know, at 16 years old, the wow. late entry program, that's what it's called. And so I graduated high school a little bit early, went to boot camp, greatest decision I ever made in my life, um, other than marrying my wife. Um but it just it set a foundation for me. I wasn't like a really confident kid growing up. Um, I was the skinny, blonde kid. Uh, my mom married my dad, who was Italian. You know, big guy. He's got four brothers, all big alpha guys. But I was the skinny kid that didn't eat too much and and um, needed to toughen up. And so the Marine Corps did that for me. And uh, you know, I served a year and a half overseas in total. And uh, 
it just gave me exposure to, you know, the worst of humanity, but also the right. best. There were a lot of great things. You think of Marines and soldiers just going out and kicking in doors. And no, I mean, we do a lot of humanitarian stuff too. So I got to see, you know, acts of valor and, you know, heroism that just, they were inspiring. And I uh, just, it gave me purpose in life, you know? Mm. And that's really what I needed. And uh, we all need that. Yeah. In it, a way, but this is where you found it. Yeah, 100%. And uh, I told my mother, I said, she begged me because she was a nervous wreck when I was deployed to war. Sure. She was like, please just get out and at least try going to school. You can always go back in. Well, no, you can't. I mean, you say that, but it's so hard to get back in. But I did that, and and uh, for a long time, I regretted it. Um, I was not good at being a civilian. Uh, I had, you know, PTSD, a lot of anger issues. Um, yeah, I was I was a liability, mm. not just to other people, but to myself. You know, there's always somebody bigger and badder on this planet, and um, I was gonna probably mess with the wrong person at one point in life if I didn't change. As far as um, my animal welfare, you know what I did to help animals was just going to local New York city shelters. Cause I moved there for a job with the state department. Can we, the Marine Corps. can we back up for yeah. one sec? Cause yeah. I, I don't want to skip over some of the stuff you said. Go for it. We could do a full podcast on your military career and everything there. I don't know how this is going to go today, but as far as like being one of the people, and I mean this in a good way, like the stereotype that happened back then where, you know, you're right of that age. You see this crazy shit in these two buildings that were exploded basically like yeah. on, like the biggest city in the world as i heard people who were on the ground that day basically said the biggest city in the world exploded it was it was nuts and you see all the dust going everywhere and everyone's scared and this awful attack happens on america and that feeling of patriotism kind of mixed with that age of where you're coming into your masculinity you know your will to fight and stuff like that there's so many guys like you who answered that call and so when i think back to a day like that which was a very important day in my life where in my case i was very very little you know i i didn't experience it that way but i'm curious to know like when you're watching that happen you talked about you were in school and, and you saw it on the tv and you're like i gotta go fight this were you thinking about what you were gonna go fight or were you just more thinking like something bad has happened and i need to help a hundred percent something bad just happened and I need to help. Mm. I need to, this was an attack. It was clear that it was an attack on our country. Right. And this wasn't an accident. I mean, you know, it, it was pretty clear when the, the only the first plane had hit too. Uh, but we still didn't know anything. But then when it comes out like this was, you know, Al Qaeda took responsibility for this. Um, that's like, Hey, let's go kick some ass. And like, this is the greatest country in the world, and you're going to pull something like that. You're going to pay for it. Um, I, I just – I don't like bullies. I, I don't. Right. And that was – I mean, bully is – doesn't do it justice, but um, no, I saw those guys as bullies. And, it was sadistic. Oh, 100%. Well, I mean, it was just like – to this day, I still – like, I'll watch it over and over again, and I'm like, I still can't believe that was a thing. Yeah. You know, like planes into a building. It's just – the whole thing it still does not register 21 years later yeah you don't you don't um you don't pull that on 
innocent people, you know, that can't defend themselves. It, it's, I don't know. That's and just, there's something about the fact that, like, when you go into the military, you know, you're you're risking your life for the country. This is a commitment you make, and and you know, the downside of how this goes is you don't make it back. That's a decision, though, that you're making. It's mm-hmm. not like the old days where everyone just got drafted and stuff yeah. like that. So it's it's an act of courage and bravery. But there's also something to it when acts of war happen and it's completely directed at the people who were never faced they with that decision. They have nothing to do with it. Inclu- by the way, including some of the people who died in there who were veterans yeah. who had left the service. And they're like, okay, well, I'm not on the battlefield anymore. And then boom. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't. I don't know. I, it comes up a lot on this podcast or different people who were there or experienced it a certain way where it was a life-changing event. And it still is just like the psychology around it, I think is what I'm trying to say, is just wild. Totally agree with you. I mean, no, I mean, I, I just went down there the other day with one of my veterans who was in town who'd never been there. And I mean, that's sacred ground. It's really unique. Like, you know, we got a lot of crazy people in New York, but they even they know you don't oh, mess yeah. with this area. Um. And I told him too, if you see anybody screwing around out here, like you say something. Never, um, I've been down there a million times. I've never, never seen, seen someone not acting reverent. Isn't that unique? It is. And like in the time we live in too, you think about it, like none of us are yeah. reasonable. And well, some of us are, yeah. but a lot of people aren't. You know, people want to make a scene and get attention on everything. It is nice to see, knock on wood, that that place, you know, when you go there, it doesn't matter how many times you walk through that. Your whole vibe, it's its very peaceful, and it's mm-hmm. its a nice reminder of things. It's not just totally morose all the time, but your whole vibe, and it seems to be the vibe of pretty much everyone there, is reverence and respect. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool thing. I hadn't even been to New York until after I got out of the Marine Corps, too. Had That's never be been a powerful moment when you went down there. Uh, yeah, they were still um, cleaning it up. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, I mean, I I remember it vividly. I got out of the subway station down there. I think it was the Canal Street one, the one that wasn't destroyed, and just stood there on the top of the stairs and, and just looked down into the pit. And it was, yeah, yeah. It's, um, I still, I, to this day, I still can't wrap my head around just how huge that that was. Yeah. So It's a place you had never been, but it was a place that directly affected your life literally completely. Yeah. Um, That's a crazy thought for me to try to understand. Yeah, we're all Americans at the end of the day. We're brothers, sisters, you name it. And uh, we're all a big family here in this country. So uh, we struggle together. We succeed together. And, um, you know, God, we wouldn't be the country that we are if we didn't, you know, take a stand for stuff like that. Absolutely. But when you – so you went in officially at 18 Mm -hmm. once you had done – what was it called? Deferred – Oh, the delayed entry program. Delayed entry. Yeah. Okay. So you go in, you train, I assume, for like a year, year and a half kind of deal? So boot camp in the Marine Corps is um, 13 weeks. Oh, that's then, not long. No, it's the longest out of all the services. Wow. But no, it's it's not that long. But then you go to schools afterwards. So I went oh, to okay. infantry school and a bunch of specialty schools. And what was your specialty? I was an infantryman. Got it. Yeah, all day. And so how, how long until you were deployed? Uh, so I deployed immediately after infantry school. I went on a MU um, out of Southeast Asia. On a what? On a oh, Marine Expeditionary Unit, big ship. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. They fill it with a bunch of pissed off Marines and <laughs> just drive around the world and 
you know, waiting to uh, unleash them. And where did you go? Like, what year is this? Was this when Iraq had started, or there was Afghanistan as well? Um, oh four, oh five, oh six. Oh, you were in both. Yeah, I went to Afghanistan as well. Did, where'd you go first? I went to Afghanistan first. And what were you doing in Afghanistan? This is very interesting. Yeah, because this was like, for context, we really did a nice job there in the six to twelve months after nine eleven. And then the whole Iraq thing started to happen, and that's where this whole 20-year, what ended up being a very sad ending, began. So you yeah. got there after that initial push and after we'd yeah. already gone into Iraq. Mm-hmm. We had been – so I went to Afghanistan in '04 when they did the big troop surge. Congress sent a ton of Marines out there, and then out of nowhere they just said, we've got too many guys here. Let's pull them. And so I only spent a few months there. Uh, Justin's my Afghanistan guy over here. Um, but Iraq was was my bread and butter, which I would prefer to be in over Afghanistan all day. Why? I I don't like hiking up mountains for days <laughs> and weeks. <laughs> yeah, like what was this, at that point? Like what was the strategy there? Like what were you as an infantryman? What what were you doing? Uh, you're guarding local communities, making sure that you know Taliban doesn't come in and and abuse these people because that's what it is. It's bullying to the fullest right. extent. The Taliban. That's you know they um, they rule with fear. Um, so it's gathering information, but also community building, helping support their, their, you know, economy. You know, there's a lot of farmers there. There's also a lot of opium farmers there. So trying to turn those into, you know, crops that aren't killing people all over the world. Um, you know, irrigation systems, things like that, ways to support them, because if they're good on their own and you're helping them, giving them a hand up, well, in many cases it was a handout, but... Um, you know, they, there's more respect for you. Um, they, they need you around. So they're going to give you the information that you want in order to go and get the guys that are, you know, doing this stuff. You take a good walk through those poppy fields. No. (laughs) (laughs) Justin. Yeah, it's Justin. Yeah. We're going to talk about that when you're on. Some of my guys, like my one guy, Tuna, I can't remember now if he was in it or if he was showing me a picture of one of his buddies. I think it was him in it. But he was showing me a picture just like standing in the poppy field. And then there was like some faraway shot of what it looked like. And I'm like, they're beautiful. This too. is where it's all coming yeah, from. Right? <laughs> yeah. 80% of the world's opium is grown yeah. in Afghanistan. 80%? Wow. 80%. Jesus. That's nuts. I did I did hit a uh, hookah at a sheik's house in Iraq once. Because oh, nice. you have to. And nice. I did not know that there were other things in it. None of us knew. Mm. So we had to go back and immediately report that. That <laughs> pops on a drug test. It's like, wait a second. So I'm in war. I did my job. Didn't know there were drugs in it. Now you're going to kick me out with a dishonorable discharge. Yeah, what's that conversation like? Like, uh, oh, we just accidentally did drugs? <laughs> yeah, we were like, yo, we're, we're actually tripping right now. And uh, <laughs> No, they're actually pretty cool about it. Apparently it happened. Happened to everybody. Yeah, yeah. You got to pop your Everybody's doing there. it. <laughs> That's nuts. Yeah. But yeah. when so you went to Iraq after like three months, you said. Um, so after Afghanistan, I went back to Japan, Southeast Asia. I did some anti piracy work. Oh, um, you were stationed in Japan. Yeah, I lived there. What do you mean anti piracy? Like actual pirates? Yeah, there's there's a lot of pirates that are um, disrupting uh, shipping lanes. Really? Oh yeah. In Japan. Uh, Southeast Asia, yeah. Um, I didn't know that. The Horn of Africa. Haiti, or not Haiti, excuse me, Somalia, 
um, gets all the attention, but right. Southeast Asia was was pretty gnarly before that kicked off. So yeah. that's like the whole basically just escorting the boats in, escorting the boats, but um, also interdiction. So if there's like a weird fishing boat that's being, you know, there could be you know drugs or guns on it, um, just bad people on it. You'll take little swift boats over and you you uh, board the boat and you check the boat for you know narcotics or uh, weaponry, things like that. I mean, it's crazy because you'll be on like a huge tanker ship and all of a sudden you'll see like two small boats in the distance following you. And it's like, what are you going to do with this massive boat? But they'll find a way. They'll find a way yeah, to get that they thing will. on shore. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> Look at me. I am the captain now. What's, <laughs> <laughs> what's, uh, what's the jurisdiction like though with that? Because you're... I guess you're stationed on a United States base as a Marine, but then you're able to go out there and be the police in, in that way? What's well, international in waters? Because it's, mm. it's an internationally controlled shipping lane. So, Interesting. So it's not just the U.S. that does it. There are other countries, you know, um, that, you know European countries that will do this stuff. That's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. So, so you're yeah, working cool. with a bunch of other places too? Yeah, absolutely. And how long were you there doing that? Uh, I was stationed in Japan for a little bit over a year. Um, I did the tsunami cleanup in 04 as well. That was... In Sri Lanka? Yeah. Brutal. How'd you end up in Sri Lanka? Like, they oh, just called in the Marines they, there? Oh, they... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were pulling bodies out of trees. Ugh. I mean, that... You want to talk about traumatic. That was... Those poor people. We forget about that event. I mean, I, I don't, because some people I know talk about it still, because they have ties to Sri Lanka. But, like, a lot of people, like, in the media, you never hear about that, but... I don't even remember how many people died in that thing, but Sri Lanka is effectively a giant island, mm-hmm. and it just got leveled yep. by this thing. And Walled the tsunami, water. if I remember correctly, it's like a hurricane, but it goes the opposite way. Is that it? Honestly, I have no idea. The tsunami's a big wave. So yeah, it's like... just that, yeah. Oh, you're you're talking about a typhoon, probably. Yeah, I'm not um, a scientist. So sorry. if it's uh, a typhoon, is a hurricane. Um, on the west, if you're on the east, like or in the Pacific, the Atlantic Ocean, it's a hurricane. So it may very well go the opposite way. I should know that, but like the tsunami basically has the same types of effects. It's the same family of effects. Yeah, no, fair to say, it looks just like a hurricane on there. Yeah, yeah. So you, how long were you there cleaning that up? Uh, I was there for two weeks. That was it. Actually, two and a half weeks. I want to say somewhere around there. Did we send like thousands of, of Marines in there? We did. Wow. Marines, sailors, I mean, anybody and everybody that we could spare to help, yeah. We I were mean, bringing hovercrafts in from the boats and supplies, and, um, I mean, we were digging mass graves. I mean, That's yeah. traumatic shit. Yeah. There was no war involved in this. These are just... Mother nature. Yeah, I think that's the stuff that blows my mind, is trying to conceptualize what it's like to... Just be on an island. Let's say you work at a beach resort and you look over, the water's getting sucked away. And then you look up and there's a wall of water coming at you. Like you're so helpless. What do you do? I mean, that stresses me out to think about. You wait for you it know? to hit. I mean, it, it's like, it's a, it's a wild thing. I mean, even, yeah. even with, even with hurricanes and stuff like that, like the people who waited out, like, oh, here comes the eye of the storm. Yeah. Like, I don't think we have a concept most of us. I, I definitely don't like when I'm just sitting around during the day. Like, I forget about it. But the pow- you can't beat nature. No. Like, you can't beat nature is a – whether it's species themselves or, you know, like, 
the craziness of of the elements around us. Yep. That shit gets on you like that water's killing you. That she, avalanche yep. is killing you. She's You're in done. control always. Yeah. Whether you you believe it or not, she is. Yeah. And you know a lot about that, don't you do? But I guess after sometime after that, like after Japan, you went full time to Iraq? Yes. So I served um in Ramadi. That was my last deployment. Mm. What year? Oh five, oh six. It was uh it was intense. Now that was when that was like right before we got out of Zakawi, right? Yes, and I actually um I chased him too. There was really? Oh yeah, he he um he uh there was a time we almost got him. And I you want to talk about seeing what the US military can do, what the US Marines can do like with the snap of a finger. This was badass. So, we have this vehicle checkpoint um and He's in one of the vehicles. They couldn't get turned around. So they pulled up to the vehicle checkpoint, and these dudes take off, jump out of the car. He dropped a laptop, which we got. They, you oh, were yeah. in this – wait, I know about this, Chase. You were in this? So, yeah, I was in support of it. Yep. No I shit. was right there, dude, out of nowhere, and it comes in on the radio, and then there are um, Amtrak tanks, the amphibious tanks, just flying over the Euphrates River, running over car – not – cars with people in them but literally Empty going over, yeah <laughs> i hope not yeah <laughs> shoot but literally driving over cars to go and get this guy and they had him held up in the hospital over there and it was just a straight shootout they had a whole team of dudes there firing if, out of windows if i'm remembering it correctly it was like they had that they had intelligence pretty i for relatively speaking like pretty far ahead of time on that so that yeah. was really that was pretty well planned and then somehow he got away that was there was a book black flags by joby warwick mm -hmm. who he won the pulitzer prize for it's a fucking amazing book it's all about like the it's called black flags the rise of isis and it's all about alzacalwi and how he was the guy who built this thing yep. and so the one one of his sources was the woman at the cia not about who chased him and so mm -hmm. they're going through all these stories i remember re i read that like I don't know, six months ago or something, but I remember reading yeah. about that chase and I'm like, fuck, got away again. You know what's crazy is that checkpoint too. I'm pretty sure the guy, the Marines that set the checkpoint, it was a snap vehicle checkpoint. So it's what unscheduled. It's it's not a planned thing. They're just told, hey, go to this road on a, like they'll, they could be out on a patrol, right? Or whether it's a mounted vehicle patrol or a foot patrol and they'll get a radio in, hey, just go do a checkpoint and stop cars here and search them pretty sure don't quote me on this um that it was a, a snap checkpoint and they had no idea what it was about because they didn't want the information getting out there mm. but the tanks were already on standby and ready to go i mean they were they were scrambling fighter jets it was cool as hell yeah. i mean i i get chills thinking about it that's like a dream for a marine it's like chasing a ghost yeah too. Yep. it's literally like chasing a ghost that guy was a nasty nasty person is a bad motherfucker. straight evil hey guys if you're enjoying this episode please be sure to share it on social media and with your friends sharing these episodes around is the best possible thing we can do to spread the word about the show and continue to get great guests like this so thank you to all of you who have been sharing the show each week and thank you to all of you who are going to do it now also make sure you hit that link down in my description and get your own eight sleep pod pro cover today for $150 off using code trendifier. It's the best possible investment you can make in your sleep. Total game changer. You're going to love it. So check it out. Once again, that's code trendifier, T R E N D I F I E R at checkout to get $150 off your eight sleep pod pro cover order. 
Yeah. Straight evil. And he took advantage of, you know, we fucked up a lot of stuff. I mean, we shouldn't have been there in the first place. But once we got there, you know, basically removing all the bathists from any government position and creating all this sectarian violence. And then this guy comes in like, like a vacuum yep. and just says, oh, oh, you don't like the Shiites either? Join the crew. Yeah. And now suddenly you have all these, including people who were like formerly perfectly normal people living a happy life. And now they're pissed off because in this case, not the color of their skin, but the, the identification of their religious tribe is now said no. Like, mm -hmm. you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to be involved in your country at all. I mean, of course they're going to get pissed off. Mm -hmm. And this guy took advantage of all of it. It's mm -hmm. crazy. Like, I didn't know anything. Like, I knew who he was. I did not understand how much violence and control that he was responsible for from, let's say, like the end of 2003 through his death in 2006 in building Iraq into this giant hellhole, basically, at that point. And then... You know, what he built ended up becoming what we would see in ISIS. That's yep. a crazy thing to me. Yep. And they're a different breed than the, you know, Al Qaeda's twisted. Obviously, they did 9 11. But these guys, like, yeah, um, they kill you in, in just the most twisted, morbid ways. Um, it, it was it was wild. But my first, um, I, I was a point man when I got over there on that deployment, meaning I was the first guy to go into every house on a patrol. Oh, so, you were doing the house patrols. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were hitting houses. Oh, wow. We were hitting targets. Um, FBI's most wanted list, um, which is more than ten people. But we had those posters everywhere in our compound. It was it was cool. I used to have one. Um, but but I, by the way, with this thing right here, I just yeah. see you playing with it. All, all that. Just do that if it starts to go out, and I'll like tuck it in the side of my chair. Like I just see it. Like it's probably going in and out. So I just want to make sure. Is that good? Work. Yeah. All right. Cool. Work. But you were saying you were on deployments. You had the pictures of the most wanted guys. Yeah, and I, I actually had brought one back with me, and then I lost it. Um, I had a house fire. Um, but yeah, um, a house fire. Yeah, my uh, an airplane hit my my childhood home. And, what? Uh, yeah, everybody was okay. We lost our animals though. Yeah, it sucked. An airplane hit your house. Yeah, it was a King Air ninety. We lived by a um, a small private airport, and he came out of. Um, he came out of the clouds. He didn't even know the airport was there. He knew the general area. And um, he had engine failure on one side and not enough power on the other. And he came in and, and was trying to get a stretch of field to land into. And, the, and uh, the right wing, I think it was, hit a palm tree and directed it into um, into the house. It launched right in the house. The, the co-pilot actually fell out. Of like he got out and lived. What? Yeah, he lived. Yep, yep. In a lived. plane crash. Yep. Pretty crazy. I don't even know if I've heard of that. Yeah, I've probably heard of that somewhere. But that's they hit a house. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I was actually in the um, I was in the airport because I I was on the rifle range all day teaching uh, you know marksmanship. So you can't have your phone. You're not supposed to have your phone on on you. And a little flip phone back then. And my phone is going off nonstop. I'm like, shit, shit, like something's going on. I had 80 missed calls nonstop. And uh, so were, I told were the they guy, in the house. My, my mother weren't. was in the house. She got out, though, because Holy of where it hit shit. in the house. Yeah. And she says when she ran out the door, she tried to go back in to get the animals and she couldn't even get the door open because the suction. 
and um, uh, and the neighbors were, were pulling her away. Yeah. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah, she dealt with a lot because of that. I'll bet. That's like, that's some serious trauma right there. Yeah, yeah. But I was in the airport coming home to support, and I'm sitting there waiting to board my plane, and I'm watching on CNN my my home. That was your this, house. Th- yeah, this, this woman's like, oh, my God, a plane hit a house. I'm like, yo, that's my house. <laughs> she was like... Uh, that's not funny, and I'm like, no, that that's literally my house. I'm watching. You're watching burn down. Yeah. And you had you had a chance to talk with them yet on the phone at that point? So I talked my buddy. Um, who was it that answered the phone? I want to say it was my buddy Rick. Um, great high school name too, by the way, Rick. Um, I answered the phone like, yo, dude, what, what's up? Why are you calling me? Why is everybody calling me? He's like, dude, your house it's burning down. A plane hit it, and I'm like, bullshit. And he said, hands the phone to my dad. And he said, yep, I'm watching our house burn down. Jesus Christ, yeah. man. All right, sorry, I, I had to ask you about no, that. No, no, it's wild, yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah. Something about like planes and buildings and houses with your life what, <laughs> did, a, did, a lot, did a lot to you. But uh, That's not the first time I lost everything, too. Then a couple of years later, I lost everything in the Nashville flood. So now I don't Jesus. buy anything nice. All right, yeah, yeah. Don't, uh, if you're yeah. by next door, I'm moving. No. I'm out of here. No. I'm gone. <laughs> but I'm sorry, you were the point you were making with this was it had to do with the wanted posters. You said you lost them or something. Oh yeah, so we were going out, you know, hitting targets, and um, the first big target that we went to hit that I was a point man on was uh, a bath party member, and uh, we hit that thing hard too. No shots fired, nothing. But um, I was so amped up because you know you're thought to think, oh, bath party member, this is a bad dude and he that was, was saddam yeah the bath party right yeah and um so i went in and i i saw the guy i tackled him well i checked him with my rifle <laughs> and uh i felt terrible because he's an old guy but i was so amped up and i zip tied him so tight because of adrenaline that like we had to carefully cut the zip ties off because like we could not get that <laughs> it was bad yeah but um, no, it's uh, so I'm in the command center later. I finally get to call my parents in there, and and I'm like, "Yo, turn on the news. Uh, you're gonna see see the report." But that that was us, and uh, it was pretty cool. So you were doing like that was your whole job when you were there. You were doing these house checks. Well, high, high value targets, but we were also no, we were also patrolling the neighborhoods, and you know, if somebody wanted to pick a fight, you know, we were getting into firefights and things like that. What was it? You know, what was it like is such a dumb question because it's so broad. But, there are no dumb questions in life. But, <laughs> well, thanks for helping me out. But I, I do wonder, like, oh, I got to get you water in a second. I'll do it when you're answering next. But I do wonder, like, how do you – you get in there after this is like – this powder keg has started to explode where it could be any house, literally. Yeah. It's like someone who was a Sunni and now they're pissed off. So how did, like, the government – try to organize this because it was our decision to not allow any bath party and therefore any sunnis into the new government which you know didn't see how that could have gone could have gone wrong but they do that and now they have the two sides set up you have the sectarian violence were was was there like an internal feeling that like all right the rabbit's already out of the hat let's just like try to clean shit up and nothing good is going to happen and we'll get out of here as soon as we can or were they actually still thinking no we can make this work we can make these people set up a solid government where everyone's included eventually and like they're all happily ever after 
So I think that the idea of the brass and the big wigs that are calling the shots, you know, sitting behind desks all day and, you know, sitting in a house of representatives or a Senate, you know, uh, I think it was their idea that we can fix this or that we have to fix this where we have to at least show that we're trying, but you can't force feed something like that. You're just going to make people push away from it. And, um, but no, I mean, the guy's actually going out and, you know, blood, sweat, and tears all over that country, you know, we're sitting there like, this is a total, this is, this is screwed. Like it's, it's never going to happen. I mean, you got guys doing, pulling up on vehicle checkpoints with car bombs for God's sakes. Do you think that that kind of culture just goes away? And that's not, I'm not saying the culture in general in Iraq was like that, but you have, there's a, a bad influence in this country, an evil influence. Somebody is in here. There is a bully in here. You can't see him. But they're here, and they're not just going to let you, you know, get away with this. They're not going away. These are brainwashed people, you know. It's a scary thing to think about because, you know, if you have hope in people, you want to believe that there's things that can change. But sometimes you do have things where just on a large population basis, I'm not saying there aren't individual cases where there there could be exceptions, but the train's left the station, you know what I mean? And you can't, as much as you want to say, oh, wow, I really want to save these people, like, even if it was somewhat your fault for making it happen, it's done, you yeah. know? And now the the battle is, A, survival for you guys while you're over there, and B, try to make this as clean as it possibly can. You know, try to put as much of it back in the hat as you can, but know that you're going to have a lot of damage on the way there from from the people who are there. It's It's a wild, to this day, it's a wild concept for someone like me to think about who wasn't there. And it's something that in the history books, you know, they're still going to be trying to make sense of the downstream effects of this 50 years from now. Yeah. I mean, we're still writing checks today and we'll be writing checks for it tomorrow. And, you know, probably the rest of my lifetime, you know, it's a crazy thing. So you were, you were there for like a year, something like that. Uh, Nine months there. Okay. Yeah. And you were saying there was, firefights all the time yeah i mean shoot i've i've that when i knew that i had had it and i'm like yeah so first of all before we went they explained like when they said you're going to ramadi we all looked at each other and we're just like shit like so we looked at each other and, and we didn't nobody said anything but you could see the look in everybody's faces like looking at each other like some of us aren't going to come back right like i was I was young, um, but I knew, like, I had to get comfortable knowing, like, hey, there, there's a chance I'm not going to come back. And, like, I convinced myself, hey, I'm I'm probably not going to come back. So um, make this worth it. Was that to anchor your expectations, or was that literally you talked yourself into that and you really believed it? I really believed that, yeah. And I think that we all did for the most part. Um. I mean, what way to live is that? I mean, no matter the situation that you're in, like, yeah, I'm going to die here in the next, you know, or I don't want to die. I don't want to, you know, then, you, then you're not actually fighting the war. You're fighting to stay alive. Right. And then you're not fighting for your brothers that you're, you're patrolling with. And that's what you need to do. Screw the political BS. Because I heard what you said. Yeah, we, sh- we shouldn't have been there. You know, back then I'm like, hell yeah, we should be here. This is important. Now I'm like, you know what? There are so many lives that, that didn't need to go. I've got buddies that left behind kids, you know, 
my buddy Frank freaking died and his wife was pregnant and never mm. got to see his daughter. And he had a three-year-old already. And so I look at these wars and, you know, these politicians and, you know, we've got everybody over here like, yeah, Ukraine. It's like, well, wait a second. Are you going to go fight it? Because mm. if you're not going to go fight it, keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth shut. Yeah, I think it's it's effed up what's going on. But you know what? I'm sick and tired of losing, you know, young, brilliant, strong yeah. Americans because, you know, of some political agenda. I'm over it. Agreed. And this happens when we're talking about this because you don't always get yeah. the context and stuff. But I do. I'm glad you pointed that. I, I, I want to be respectful about that because I remind myself I sit in an armchair. You know, yeah. like I, I wasn't I wasn't in it and I have my opinions on things when I think there's a lot of evidence. But what I always do try to make sure to say, because I believe this a thousand percent, is that none of the people who were there fighting in Iraq and I'm only talking about Iraq with this Afghanistan, I believe we should have been there. But with Iraq, you guys are following orders. You have a yeah. job to do. You go over there. You're not in Washington, D.C. making those decisions. You've signed up to protect this nation wherever the call comes, and you go over there and you do your damn job. And there's a lot of heroes who went over there, and I appreciate the fuck out of that. So I want to be very, very clear on that. Politics and what the guys have to do and face when they get in there are two very, very different things to me, and I think I speak for a lot of people when I say that. Well, I appreciate that, and I, I, I strongly believe that you do too. Um, and the thing is, like, what am I going to do? Say no? I signed up to do this with good intent. Right. And even though I believed at the time, had I not believed in the war, you know, okay, I'm not going. Well, you're dishonorably discharged. That's like being, I mean, that's the like the worst felony you can get as a civilian. You can't even work at 7-Eleven if you have a dishonorable discharge. Really? Oh, yeah. No, it's it's insane. I didn't know that. I mean, it's, it's well, I guess it's not hard to get one. Just go out and and be a, a complete derelict and you'll you'll probably get one but yeah no you're you're in, it's not like a standard felony that you can just get erased in most cases i didn't know that that was like yeah. a personal record thing i thought that was a military record thing oh yeah no it's out there you can't get a concealed a yep you can't get a concealed carry permit um really yeah if you get dishonorably yeah. So imagine that. You go into the let's say you, you go in early, you go in at 17, 19 years old, you make a stupid mistake, everybody does. And boom, all of a sudden you're tossed out, you got no money, and you can't get into college, you can't you know, I I met guys that served in Iraq or Afghanistan, great Marines, and they come back and they get popped for, you know, doing drugs or something. Should they be doing drugs? No, but they're also coping with some serious stuff that they've seen. I got boom. a problem with that. Yeah. I, there's a difference between someone being like a criminal and like killing people and laughing over there and like actually committing war crimes. That's that's a whole different thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, like you said, 17, 18, 19 years old, I was a so fucking idiot at that age. Yeah. You know what I mean? And now add like combat experience, PTSD, all this shit. Mm-hmm. God knows, I, I got a problem with that. I don't. I never knew that before. I'm glad you, you go to that war up. and you come back, and your, you know, your, I think emotional intelligence or something, your program like somebody who's you know sixty, seventy years old in the brain, because of what you've seen. It's not. It's it's like being a seventy-five year old man in a you know twenty-five year old's body. You've seen some stuff. You've yeah. seen more than a lifetime of things. Now, did you? When you finished up, you finished up in 06 in Iraq? Uh, yes. And correct. did you retire from the military, from the Marines at that point? So I 
finished the Marine Corps in 2007 and then officially out of the reserves in 2010, I think it was. Uh, so you got called out of Iraq and then – Yeah, the end the, of my deployment was there. Um, was where? Was like the – that was the end of my deployment and then I didn't, I didn't go back after that. Got it. Now, did you – were you at peace with that? Was that your decision or were there – because we talked about a yeah. little bit at the beginning, like some things you were dealing with, like how much did that make the decision versus like, I feel like I've served my country and time to move on with the second phase of my life. I was content and had closure with my time in the, you know, serving the Marine Corps. But probably the biggest thing that still weighs on me is um, I was called by a, a captain that I served with and he said, hey, Tate, we're spinning up again with a different unit we're forming and um, it was going to be a a mounted truck hit uh, team with um, one of my gunnery sergeants that I was very close with. And he said, I want you on this deployment. And I had, I had been home for two weeks and I'm like, no, I don't think I can do it. I need to go and party first. Like I needed to let loose. Mm -hmm. Like I was, it sucked when you're going to war and you're deployed and then you're seeing your buddies from high school. You think it sucks. They're out having a good time in college and like you just you get tired of the BS in the military. It's not, you know, I love the Marines at my level, but then, you know, they start playing stupid games with you and, you know, you just you just put up a lot of bullshit. And that's why a lot of good Marines leave the Marine Corps in time. And God, I really yeah, screw it. I'll I'll say this stuff because I I love the Marine Corps. Yeah, I'm not I mean, dude, I've everyone, got a everyone tattoo. That's, yeah, yeah, I love the Marine Corps, but it's you get those players in there after you've you've been to war, you've you've hustled, you're tired, and then you get some, you know, guy that joined the Marine Corps or the military because he wanted to get some power, and then he's you know snaked his way up the chain, and now he's he's going to show you that he's got the power, like you know. Uh, put your cover on and like, dude, I just got off of a freaking combat patrol. I just got out of a firefight. There's blood on me, right. carbon all over me. And you're telling me that I can't walk on this base with my helmet on. It's 125 degrees out. Like that's the kind of stuff I didn't want. I was going to snap. And I did snap at one point on some people. Um, I, like I, I had just had it. And, um, but so I, I decided, Hey, no, nah, I don't, I don't want to do that deployment. And then um, his name is, uh, Gunny Murkison, um, called him Merck, he, uh, he ended up getting shot in the head by a, um, a uh, Iraqi police unit that he was um, embedded with. Who, who Iraqi was that? military. Gunnery Sergeant Murkison. And who was he to you? Uh, he was one of my gunnery sergeants. He, um, he was a, a great man and uh, left behind two kids. And uh, I used to watch SEC football with him on Saturdays. And um, yeah, he was... He was like a father figure in the military for all of us in the unit. And I said, you know, you start to deal with that guilt. Like, you know, what if I were there? Maybe right. I would have seen something coming or we would have been able to identify this insider threat. And, um, yeah, that one, that one's tough, a tough pill to swallow. Like I should have manned up and, and gone, but you know, you could play that game all day. And I know that there are a lot of veterans that do that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, you gotta, you gotta take life on life's, terms live life on life's terms and you know sucks but there's nothing you can do about it now no man and and i hope for you and say this to any veteran of the many who deal with the same kind of what if on some things like 
when you've served your country, you've been around, you were all over the place too. Like you, you really hit the map around there. Like, you know, that's something 99.9% of us are never going to do. You know, you did that shit. You did it when you were young. You gave up yeah. college to go do that. You know, you, you said, I'm going to go fight for my country. And you go into the most dangerous of areas. You help protect against the most, literally the most dangerous people on the earth. And the mentality that that builds up, like in anything in life, when we spend six months, nine months, 12 months, 15 months, 18 months, this is a lot of time in an environment if we go to one place or one type of place, right? Where everything that we know, that's long enough that it can get rewired. That shit can happen in, in six months. It, it really can. Like I was on Wall Street two and a half years ago, less than that actually, because I left right before I launched this thing. I don't even remember that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I'm just some douchebag sitting in a studio. <laughs> but like when you think about every day, your protector is the man next to you and the gun you carry and you're going into bumblefuck wherever in some house you don't know if there's car bombs around like you were saying you don't know if there's if they're wired to explode or if you're going to get ambushed in there and you're living with this every day almost like that i'm putting words in your mouth but almost like that we're dead walking around here yeah. you know and now suddenly you got to come back to tampa <laughs> yeah right like that's that yeah oh, it's wild it, and they just like they do the the three day taps class that that teaches you like how to get into the workforce when you get out, and then it's like wait three days, huh? And <laughs> half of us are like trying to like sneak out of this class because it's so stupid, so boring, but um, well intended. But it's th- three days. Yeah, good luck teaching them, getting a bunch of Marines to sit still and listen to you tell us how to get jobs and build resumes. Who just left a war zone oh, yeah, two weeks like, ago? Yeah, and. No, I mean, you're hyper vigilant like no other, too, mm. because your brain has all these new doors that it's letting adrenaline out of. And then you come back, those doors close, but you still have all those chemicals. Right. And so they're just waiting to explode. Were you aware of. I don't want to just put the label on it, but were you, were you aware of some PTSD tendencies immediately, or did that take a while? To realize, like, oh, I'm reacting to things in non-normal ways because, you know, I'm not from a normal background here. Yeah, that's a great question because most people assume it's just automatic, uh, but there is a delayed onset in many cases. Mine was six months, literally, like on the dot that I really f- had my first episode. What did it? Um, some guy was disrespecting a, a woman in uh, Jacksonville Beach. And I was out there with some buddies, and I was a construction worker whistling at, at this girl. And um, my mother was single for a while, so I witnessed that as a kid, mm. and I don't get down with that. Um, and I just tripped. Um, dude, I was trying to get to this guy and rip him apart. Um, and God forbid, had I, you know, I don't claim to be this Billy badass or anything, but like when you flip that switch, a lot of veterans have that switch. You don't want to flip it because it's hard to turn off. And when I freaked it, it took so much out of me. Like, I was scared. Right. I was shaking. Um, and, you know, I've had those episodes later in life, too. You know, it's that's why I'm a big advocate of mental health. Like, I go to my therapist. Even if I'm in Africa, I zoom into my therapist. She oh, that's is, awesome. Oh, yeah. No, there's nothing, this negative stigma about therapy that, you know, that boomer 
culture in a sense. I feel like that's that's yeah. going away. It should go I away. I do feel like people, mm-hmm. I talk to more and more people because I've talked to therapists in my life. It's a yeah. huge help. Like, I think it's a great thing. And, and I always love hearing people like tough guys too. Oh, yeah. Draw attention to it. It's a great thing. Yeah. And if you're a veteran and you're struggling or it doesn't, it's not just war that gives you PTSD. I mean, my, I know my mother struggles with it from when that plane hit the house. Of there's There's other people, anything traumatic, especially from childhood, you know, go to a therapist. That shows maturity. Yeah, if you're uncomfortable with it, good, because that's how you grow in life, is being in uncomfortable situations. Right. So get comfortable being uncomfortable and get in there and work on yourself. Did you, in, in that situation, the, the first episode where it was you, it was a construction worker whistling or whatever, when I talk to guys, they describe these things very similarly, like where that switch goes off. And it's usually – it's actually usually something like that. It'll be like my friend Jim DiOrio talked about one time where a guy pushed a woman. Next thing he knew, he was on top of him and like, you know, it was ugly. So I guess the question is like they always describe it as you go blind and then once it's over, then you're like, oh, oh, shit. You, you know, go like, red. Yeah. Did you? Did that 100%, happen to you too? Yeah. The only thing that I remember is looking at him upstairs in the the building that he was building through the window. It's still plywood and everything. And I just started analyzing. And I'm I'm walking to the house calmly. Well, I was screaming at him too a little bit. Like you just stay right there and um, <laughs> don't move. <laughs> yep. I'm coming. Yep. Get, <laughs> brace yourself. Um, oh, he's on a roof too. Oh, uh, he's on the second floor. Oh, it's gonna uh, he, was, real bad. he was going to be on the ground outside of the house. On the he first he would have learned he couldn't fly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm looking at the house like, all right, what's my entry point? Um, and I can see, cause mm. not all the walls are up either. Like the plywood outside. And I'm like, okay, there's stairwell there. There's one back there. How do I get up to this guy? And it's just like being in that, you know, combat setting. That's the threat. And now how do I neutralize that? And um, yeah, it was, it was scary. Did that start happening? That kind of thing, maybe not quite to that extent, but did that start happening more like a lot after that or? Yeah, I had some anger issues. Um, I just didn't understand how to be a civilian in the, in the Marine Corps, in the military, but especially the Marine Corps, if there's a problem, you fix it right, right. there. Let's just do this, get it out. Let's, we're the smallest branch we have the least amount of money so you got to fix these problems on the fly you can't let them build up we don't have the money for that we don't have the the manpower we um we don't have the time for that and um yeah it it uh you can't operate like that in the civilian world and what what kind of jobs did you take you said you and I had talked, you ended up working at the State Department in security, yeah. but is that what you did like right away or were you doing other things in between? No. Um, so I was a day trader for a bit. Made You were a day trader? Yeah. Yeah, I made good money. <laughs> yeah. Loved How'd you it. get into that? Well, because um, well, I had always wanted to. I was always intrigued by it from like middle school. I got a middle school class where they had the simulator on the game mm. and they gave us a certain amount of fake money. And I'm like, this is so cool. Like, I love this. There's just... I have ADD to the point where, like, I need a puzzle. I want to critically mm. think here and figure out how to solve this. Like, I see problems as challenges, and I enjoy finding the solution to it. And um, so the stock market was just something that I could control on my own and make money on my own. And um, so, yeah, I would play that game. I had studied the stock market through high school. While I was in the Marine Corps, I was reading books on it. And then uh, I made my first trade, I want to say, at 25. 
and it was a huge, huge margin. It was amazing. And uh, that was after you had left. Yeah, because yeah. you got in young. I keep I yeah. to remind myself yeah. this. You're doing all this shit in Iraq. You're like 22. Yeah. Wow. 19, 20. Yeah, I had birthdays in war zones. Jesus. Yeah, those so, are great places to have birthdays. How long did you day, day trade again? I day traded. I mean, I still dabble in it. Um, I day traded for two and a half years. And I realized, and I, I also enjoyed it because I became, I've always been an introvert. Like I was the kid growing up, my parents would take me to a party with their work friends and I would hide in the coat closet the mm. whole time. So I'm surprised at that actually. Uh, yeah, I've, I've come a long way. Yeah, you've come a real long way. Thanks, Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got yeah. something out of it. Yeah, there you there go. You go. <laughs> um, but uh, so, I mean, my safe place is uh, a cave. I can lock myself in my office, day trade, whatever. I don't have to deal with people. That way I'm not having episodes where I'm freaking out on people or getting angry. I'm not stressed out. I mean, my blood pressure, the first time I went to the VA to get registered was through the freaking roof. It yeah. was like 180 over, you know, 130 or some, something. They're like, dude, you're, you, you could literally die right now if you don't like calm the hell down. And, um, but anyways, with day trading, like I didn't have a life, like I was up for pre-market trading, um, after market trading, after, after market trading, I hated the weekends. I was calling, um, um, <laughs> investor relations phone numbers and badgering these people. I had a line of questioning so I could like figure out how to get some type of hint on something. You wanted the edge. Oh, they hated, they, yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> they have to answer the phone. They do. And uh, I guarantee like you. you, they're like, oh, it's this freaking guy again. Um, but I loved it. Not yeah. great for your blood pressure. No, it's job. not. No, it, it, it's not. I would do that. And the only time I get out of the house is, is I would go work out once a day for an hour during, while the stock market was on lunch break. You get the physical activity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're working in during lunch break. I like yeah. that. But like, yeah, you, most of the guys when you talk to and they day traded, you know, didn't end well. So yeah. you're you're the exception there. That is... Especially today, I mean, at least you were doing it before we had insane levels of like high frequency trading and stuff. But like, even in the two thousands, that shit was hard. Like, it's it's literally you're in there all day and you're getting you're taking enormous positions with huge sums of money and then basically before settlement, moving it or mm -hmm. you know you're nervous overnight while you're holding a position because you know it's you're moving in big volume over time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, dude, I was doing penny stocks too. Crushing it. <laughs> Absolutely wrecking it. It was amazing. Aeratine International. It's yep. Penny right. stock with huge yep. potential upside. Do it. <laughs> you don't have the feds looking at you. You're going to want to trust me on this one. You don't have the feds looking at you, right? What's that? They're not going to make a case on you from back, oh, back God, then, no. right? No. Good. No. Just want to make sure we're free. Yeah, no, no. Go for it. Go for it, guys. You're doing nice things now. Yeah, so. I spent all that money on that ball. So. <laughs> so you do that for a couple of years, and then I guess that's when you got into the whole State Department yeah. security? Like, what led to that? So um, I was applying for jobs everywhere because I knew, like, you know what, I, I can't do this forever. And I was cocky to where I was like, well, I can I can place my trades and set my, um, you know, my stop loss and, you know, all that, and I'll be good. No, that's not how it works. Uh-uh. No. Uh -uh. no. Um, that's, that's weekend warrior stuff where you're not going to make anything. So, uh, I was applying to jobs like Lockheed Martin, Boeing, like security jobs, like, you know, um, you know, not the guy that's, that's wearing the uniform, no disrespect to them, but I was not going to wear like a mall cop uniform or something like that. <laughs> um, 
I love mall cops, though. Um, however, I, I wasn't getting anything. And really? that, that really pissed me off because... Why? I, dude, it's... I mean, the amount of applicants they were probably getting, too. But, like, I couldn't even get a response. Like, there's gatekeepers, and it's like, you know, when you think about these young kids coming out of the, the military, well, first of all, they're not kids anymore. I mean, they're they're grown-ass men. Yes. Um, that found their inner monster. Now we just got to teach them how to control it. Um, but that's front, that's, that's door kicking diplomacy. I call it these guys, we had to go and kick someone's door in raid their house, perhaps apprehend or detain, you know, the man of the house, take him in for questioning. And now we've got to still patrol that neighborhood and make these people our friends. That is a talent. That is a talent. You go into their home with, you know, M4, grenade launcher, and kit it out. We come in peace. Get the hell on the ground. Get the, yeah. And now all of a sudden, like, the next day you're patrolling by like, hey, good to see you again. And uh, But, no, we do it every time. You have to relationship build or those people, they're going to let, you know, Al-Qaeda in here. And next time you kick that door in, there's going to be a grenade at your feet. The ironic thing is that can cut both ways. And what I mean by that is when you open up a relationship on the basis of fear and then pull off that, you can create in a similar psychological vein as like the Helsinki syndrome or whatever. You can mm -hmm. create a friend, but you could also create a massive enemy and someone yeah. who wants to watch it burn. So it's like. You're kind of in a no-win situation there because you do have to do this, but you know, I, I guess you make as many as many of them friends as you can. But yeah, then yeah. you use them in in the chess piece of this whole thing to make sure that you get intelligence to avoid all all the bad guys, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you also have to be you know always remember that it's their country. This exactly. is their land. You you have to respect that. So, yeah, you're going in their door, but you're doing what you have to do to stay alive, but you need to do it with a level of respect. Like, don't go in there saying, you know, calling names or, you know, get the F on the ground. Um, it's, you know, get on the ground. But, like, there are second and third order effects of, of any sort of disrespect. Like, you know, I hear a lot of young Marines, especially, like, those that haven't gone – because this generation – that is that's in the Marine Corps now, you know, a lot of them signed up to go to war and, and serve their country inspired by, you know, our generation and they're not. So they have this like killer mentality. They call Marines killers. Like literally a, a conversation in the Marine Corps walking by someone is kill. And the other guy goes kill. And then you keep walking. Like that is how they program you. And so they have this mentality like, God, I can't wait to get to war and, and drop. But not now, if I hear that, uh, uh, don't you mm. dis, uh, uh, don't you say that. War is not a good thing. I no. shoot, I had a I had a trunk in my room in the in my barracks room with stickers all over it and one of them was give war a chance marines need jobs. Like how stupid is that? And now I'm like embarrassed that I even had that because I went to young. war. Yeah. You were young. Yeah. War is hell. Yeah. War, you don't listen. I think as you get a little older you don't have to be there to know that. Yeah. And and even if you can't appreciate it you should probably, if you're a guy like me, a civilian, you should probably listen to the guys like you who came back because they all say the same fucking thing. They yeah. all say that to a man. Like, this is not, there's nothing good about this. No, no. And most of them know it's it's implied. They know not to say it around, you know, 
our generation. Yeah. Don't do that. That's that's going to be a real quick punch to the mouth. But on the contrary, were you one of those guys? Because I hear this all the time and I get it. And I don't have a problem with it either. It's just an interesting psychological concept. But were you one of the guys that when you got there, when you first deployed, got to Afghanistan, you're excited. Like you belong here. This is what you want to do. Um... I was excited going into the Marine Corps. I did volunteer for Afghanistan and Iraq because my timing was unique. So I was missing the units that I was was going to. I was missing their their deployments by by like a week. Um, so I was volunteering and getting sent to other units, um, and um, so I was volunteering. And not going to lie, sometimes when you raise your hand, they're like, cool, sweet, you're going to the Philippines. And no, it didn't happen to me. Um, <laughs> but um, so I raised my hand. I remember they're like, Tate, you, you, and you. And I'm like, then they say, they don't tell you where you're going. And then they say, you're going to Afghanistan. I'm like, shit's real now. Mm. Now I got to tell my mother, uh-oh, like life hits you quick real quick and um i wasn't i wasn't afraid i wasn't scared um like i'm trying to put myself you know in 18 19 you know 22 year old me um it's it's a it's a eerie feeling like you're kind of excited but you're also like oh shit like i, I may not be here in a year mm yeah, like, what are the effects that this is going to have on my little brother and sister who aren't going to grow up with an older brother? You know, like, if I die, you know, my parents are going to have to live with that. Um, it's a second and third order effects because those are the ones that really, yeah, like, you know, I'll let Justin speak for himself. But for me, it's like, if I die, you know, it's it's over, but it's not over for them. Right. You know? So the whole community gets rocked by that. Do you struggle sometimes with, this is another one I hear about all the time, the survivor's guilt of things because you're over there, you watch friends die. You know, you've talked about it, a few of your friends, like they left kids behind, they have kids they never met. Like, is that was that something that you dealt with that then also contributed to, you know, how, I mean, dealing with that mentally is, Impossible in yeah. some ways. Um, I I did. Um, I've I don't think you'll ever come to terms with it. It will always kind of linger. Um, I'm in a good place now about it. But yeah, right. I mean, there were situations where a bullet missed me by left. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline than an inch like mm. went through my pack i mean i i took my corpsman uh my navy corpsman great corpsman too and i sat him in this unique position while we were doing a vehicle checkpoint a snap vehicle checkpoint and um, i thought it was a great position so i lowered him into it with the handle on the back of his vest 
And then as I'm stepping out of it and my hand is still in the handle, um, cause he's got the huge pack and you know, I don't want him to fall down this berm, just snap, 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 bullets land all around him. And I ripped him back up and it's like, holy shit. Like he would have been dead there because I put him there. Um, like that one is, those are the ones that you start to overthink. I mean, I've been in situations where, you know, we were doing, um, you know, an OP and observation point. Nobody's supposed to know that we're in this house. It's an abandoned house. Uh, we get information that dudes are doing weird things there. And then, you know, some kids walk up to the house cause they're coming to fix it up cause their family's going to move into it. We had no idea they're coming and they mm. slipped away. My guy was going to grab them. We're going to hold on to them in the house for a little bit so we could finish up what we were doing. We were there for nine hours. These kids come in. Then they go, he's not able to to detain them. So they run into the village and they're yelling, Marines, Marines in the house. And they told everybody, next thing you know, the, um, the, uh, how many of the loudspeakers are going off. How many were you at the time? There were, there were six of us in one house and three of us in another house or not, four of us in the other house. Not right? a ton. Yeah, but. The first thing they teach you, too, is like, hey, if you're compromised, get up and leave. Uh, well, we have been fighting for long enough, and we're like, they want to fight. Let's go. Let's do this. And so we stayed. Two hours later, you start seeing guys get dropped off, but you're not really sure. We didn't have access to aerial surveillance. And, um, dude, they brought – they, <laughs> oh, yeah. All, I mean, it, they made it rain on us. Like um, how many people? Dude – I mean, you'll have, then they brought in a drone. Um, I mean, they're talking like close to a hundred dudes were on their way. Um, and then our QRF, our quick reaction force, I don't know how those guys, and these are my boys that just aren't on patrol at the time. They're hauling ass out. Um, they're getting slammed by IEDs everywhere, but they're somehow they're just missed. This is why I believe in God, because this, you can't make this up. And, um, they got there so freaking fast. It was unbelievable. Um, so we brought everybody home. I mean, we gave away, we awarded a, a lot of Purple Hearts from that. Um, a lot of my guys took, you know, shrapnel and bullets. But um, yeah, it was a wild time. But anyways, our, our, uh, my CO, my commanding officer, pulls up on the road. So I run up on this big berm. And uh, he's like, which way they go? I said, sir, there's, you know, we just saw about 20 guys running down in that way. We're going to chase these guys down into this valley, these farm fields, because they're trying to get to the Euphrates River to cross it, because then they're home free. Um, So as he pulls off, and this is a tar road, and we have what's called IED countermeasurement systems. They call them ice machines. um, And they work. So they jam the uh, cell phone waves because these guys are calling the IEDs to set them off. I didn't know it. We were literally, I was standing on top of an ID that they paved underneath the asphalt. And so as soon as that Humvee pulled away and I'm stepping off of the road, they blew it because the system was too far away. And I went flying off of this. Dude, there's dust everywhere. The hole in the ground had to be nine feet deep. Holy shit. They had blast plates set up, these big metal plates to direct the blast up to take down a vehicle. Had they not had the blast plates, I'd have been done. And so I just sat there for a minute, um, got a little bit of blood on me, and all I hear in my my PIR, my headset, is worst hate, worst hate, this and that. But like, and you were okay. 
You were. I mean, I, I had a concussion, but I mean, pfft, I'll take that all day. But like, I rethink that one a lot. Like, I'm sure because those things don't always work. Those ice machines, and um, it's and I mean that's a full truck. My commanding officer is in it. Like, they'd have been done. I mean, they would have blown that Humvee as heavy as it is sky high. Wild. So, but you got to use that as a situation to say, hey, I'm pissed off and now now I'm offended. <laughs> now I'm insulted. Yeah. And to wake up the next day and go do it again. Mm. But yeah, there were so many situations where myself or one of my guys just shouldn't be here. Absolutely nuts. Yeah, anyone who goes into combat, like, I've it's never talked west. to someone who doesn't. It's a wild west. Doesn't deal with that, doesn't, hadn't seen that. You know, if you if you see that kind of, if you're not lucky to get the deployment where it's in a non-war zone, you know, and those guys deal with stuff too because they have friends who go into war zones. Yeah. I mean, and then they're not there, you know. It's a wild thing, and, and the brotherhood of it, you know, being in something like that is is one of the, unbelievable positives that comes out of it and Mm -hmm. that's also you know we're going to be talking about what you guys do today it's like this beautiful thing that's that's wouldn't have been possible without your experience exactly which is really really cool but we were we got onto that talking about the whole state department thing so this is yeah like four or five years after after you went into the reserves so i went into the state department in oh nine and when you say you went in, because you you've so, been applying to all these places, they weren't yeah. saying yes, and then you get hooked up with the State Department somehow. Like, what did you go right into security working for them? Yeah, so I had actually, and it was a, there was a New York position available too, and I had just visited New York. Um, this was my second time there. The first time when I saw nine eleven, a couple years before that, it was you know Times Square and you know just the touristy stuff, and I wasn't, I was like, uh, I can't do this. But the second time I went, it was actually pretty cool. Like to, I saw it from a New Yorker standpoint mm. perspective, and um, so I was like, you know what? I, I think I want to do this. I want to try this. I just I want to try to do New York. And honestly, I think that New York is what kind of saved my life to mm. an extent. I love New York, so you're speaking uh, my language, dude. I honestly, at the end of the day, yeah, I'm from Tampa. I live in Salt Lake now when I'm in the states, and I love Salt Lake. Um, uh, we moved there for my wife's job, by the way. Um, otherwise, priorities, yeah, baby. Yeah, good um, for you. Hey, happy wife, happy life. That's so, it, man. She's the best. But um, New York forces you to to deal with triggers. There are mm. so many triggers, but New Yorkers, as a culture, teach you just keep walking, keep moving forward. Mm. They don't turn a they don't they don't blink at stuff. And so when I was in these, you know other cities or other cultures throughout the country, you know, I'm dealing with, you know, your average society, um, you know, and that you'll hear lights and sirens every now and then or whatever, or you might see a crazy person like once in a blue moon. No, 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 no. In New York, you're dealing with that all the time. And you're not going to talk shit to anybody because (laughs) you're not a New Yorker yet. And all those New Yorkers will band together. I feel like after nine 11, everybody's just, uh, you know, New Yorkers look out. And um, so, yeah, it just kind of taught me to toughen up and get thicker skin. And uh, God, I wish uh, there should be a study on this. I've said this for a while. They should just move, you know, 
they got to put some things into place before they do this, but move some veterans after they come back from war to there because mm. it will, it, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it, it makes you, it forces you in a good way to, to adjust, to adapt. Yeah. And that's what we say in the Marine Corps, adapt or die. Now you got to adapt or die in the civilian world. And that's the tough one. The nice thing about it too is there is something of everything in New York. Mm-hmm. Every culture, religion, race, creed, whatever from around the world has some sort of representation there. So yep. when you're moving around, you're constantly moving in and out of different environments. And the one thing that brings everyone together is this city, which is why, you know, when we're sitting here watching the pandemic unfold, it's heartbreaking seeing mm-hmm. that. Like seeing that place silent, I, I will never, that will never like be an image. Yeah. It, it, in, a, in a different way, absolutely. It's, it's this image you can't get out of your head because you're like, wait a second, this is fucking New York. We don't, we don't, you know, we, we're, we're, not, we're not scared of anything there. But it, it was a wild time, obviously, when that was going on. And, and I'm glad to see that now starting to become that city again and people are out and about and doing their thing. And this is really interesting how you put that with veterans having some sort of program where they could be around New York because – you're so right, man. Like you're, I could see some of it, depending on the guy and the case and what what that veteran dealt with. Like I could see some of it going the other way because sure. there's there's a lot going on. But as a as a broad as a broad requirement, being around people, you know, not necessarily like, you know, I, I like it how in New York someone says "fuck you." You know, when I go to Florida <laughs> and they're like opening doors for me, I'm like, did I do something? Like, we're gonna. You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah, just something yeah. to that. You like it because everyone's still like they respect each other. Yeah, it's this great environment. So that's that's a really cool way to put it. But you were saying as well that there's a lot of triggers in New York. Yeah, and I, I didn't want to stop because you were explaining. But what what specifically, like, what kinds of things for a guy of your background would serve as daily triggers around there? Uh, one would probably be the. Um the college graduates that live in the Upper East Side, the the, uh, the punks, but <laughs> I kid. <laughs> uh, no, um, the smells. Mm. Um, I remember going out, you know, leaving base um, when the sun's setting, like, and it's it's already set, but there's still a light out, and um, there's just like eerie feelings. Like the city's a little quieter when things get quiet. Y- you like there's a good chance something's going to happen. And um but they would the the bread makers, they would burn the grates that they would cook the bread on. They would burn it, they'd set it on fire and burn it. So the, the grates uh so like they would the the ones that they put in the oven to set the bread on to cook yeah, it. Yeah, like the wood thing? Um not the wood thing, but the actual thing um oh, shelf in the oven. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um I don't know what you would call that. We'll go with grates. Yeah. Um and that smell just, I mean, it just gave me a weird feeling. And so in New York, um, especially in touristy areas, the guys that do the pretzels, that mm. burning bread, it just like immediately my brain would go back to thinking about, you know, those patrols. And it was it was pretty trippy. Um, yeah, I got, um, so there's that, I mean, just rude people that don't like disrespectful people like the construction worker yeah 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 there was a cab driver once i got in it was almost really really bad um 
And by the way, I'm I don't like to fight. I don't. <laughs> I've come a long way. This is a long time ago, so I'm not. You no, know. it's okay, man. It's... But I remember he. Um, it was my job to know Manhattan and the boroughs like the back of my hand, because if you're in motorcades, you got to know the ins and outs. Oh yeah, specifically yeah. when you were in New York working yeah. with the State Department, were you doing like the liaisons to the UN? Is that what this yeah, was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that um, no shit. But um, like Susan Rice, I was on um, her detail for a while. She was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and then the national security gonna, advisor. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, she was the yeah. advisor. Yeah. She's such a kind woman. Um, she was she was an absolute delight to be around. Like That's awesome. You know, I know a lot of people get political with, you know, this stuff. But politics aside, don't do that. She's She was a great person to me. Um, That's great to hear because you always hear the stories yeah. of the people where it's the opposite. Yeah, like, that's what people talk about. They don't talk about the positive experiences with that. Yeah, you know? I tell you what, though, I wouldn't mess with her. She's like four foot nothing, and she's intimidating as hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, to get national security advisor, no joke, man. Yeah, kind of stuff you got to do to get there. And it's to a be serious the, job to be at the UN and hold your own. Yeah, yeah, you gotta you uh, you gotta come in with a with a type A, you know, aggression, um, delicately, diplomatically. Excuse yeah. me. Yes. Um, but anyways, it was my job to know the roads and how to get places the quickest, right? Um, and the safest. What are you looking for? When you say safest, like what kinds of things are you, let's say you have, I'll just give you an example. Like, let's say you have Susan Rice staying on 53rd and 7th and she's got to get down to what's the UN 30th or no, it's uh 45th and first All right, 45th and first. Are you, is there specific things you're looking at on certain streets sure. like stores that are there that you don't want her going by because there might be people of a certain you the know, less amount of cars interest around there yeah the less amount of vehicles uh around the better not just for for speed but the gridlock is i mean that's a right. that's a choke point you don't want to get stuck in traffic with cabs this close to you um i mean it's a bulletproof not a bulletproof it's an armored vehicle um and it had like glass this thick um but still, you, you just don't want to take that chance. And um, how many cars would you put? Like if Susan Rice is going from that hotel to the UN, how many cars are in her motorcade? Uh, with Susan, it was only two to three. You know, lead vehicle and you know rear vehicle. I don't know what it is now. And I, I probably um, – if I did, I wouldn't share it just because right, right, right. you know, yeah. um, I might actually have to watch that one. Um, but anyways, if I'm going from there, I'm using um, – uh, West Side Highway hitting 34th because it's the widest street, mm. and then if that gets jammed up, though, I mean we'll go we'll go the opposite way on a one way in New York in a heartbeat. Um, oh yeah, we part the sea. We'll drive on sidewalks, whatever we need to do. You worry? I mean, you got to worry about civilians and stuff. I in mean, that kind of case. Uh, yeah, and we do it safely. You know, we've got oh, lights and sirens going. Yeah, yeah, we do it I safely. But I'm not gonna if I can if I can keep from sitting still. And getting, you know, stuck in one spot, I'm going to move. I'm going to do whatever I can to get around it. I was thinking you were, like, just out of nowhere, like, oh, you know, you know what, hook, yeah. it, hook at Yui on this one. Like, That's good. <laughs> like bad boys or something, you know, flying yeah. and jumping over bridges. I'm like, and, I, you would have hit me. Like, I'm the guy uh, walking around there. Like, yeah. yeah. I'm done. That's crazy. Yeah. So, and you were the guy planning all this, too. Yeah. Um, like. That, um, I helped plan the, um, you know, all of the... Towards the end, because I was done working those hours, it was insane. Um, 
I started doing um, the planning for UNGA, the UN General Assembly, and, and the um, security details coming in, and all the diplomats and their entourages. And, oh wow! And yeah, so that's a cluster right there. Oh yeah, it's a lot of people. There was a month out of the year that like I was working twenty. I was sleeping in my cubicle. I believe it. Nuts. How many people like? I never, I've never Googled this, but like with the UN, obviously we look at stuff happening there all the time. There's a lot of people, but mm-hmm. most of the nations around the world are in it. And then like on a regular, on a Tuesday, you know, during not peak season, like how many people from all these different countries are walking into that building? Hundreds? Uh, I mean, thousands. Wow. Yeah, daily. I mean, then plus you got the tourists that come in and, and tour it, but yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of people. So was your work on this always – you were up in New York with the State Department the whole time? Yeah. I mean I went on some some trips here and there, but mostly New York. I was able to, to keep myself up here. Um, I was trying to go into the U.S. Marshals. We were talking about that the other day. Um, that was a dream job for me, um, and I pulled my, my application from um, – after it got accepted – to actually start vet ball. I mean, that's how much I wanted to do this. I think I think it's time to go there. I, I think we're right on the doorstep. So <laughs> yeah. let's let's do it. Let's go all the way in. Yeah, I'm excited about this. But what year did that? Not necessarily vet ball, but what year did you have a an understanding of I want to work with animals and I want to move towards doing something like that, or was this more of like a it came together. You know what? I'll shut the fuck up. Why don't don't you explain how this happened? Um, so I've always been in love with animals always. Um, you know, when I would have a bad day growing up, like I had this spot underneath my bed that, you know, nobody knew that it was even there. And I would climb in there with, you know, one of my cats or dogs throwing some headphones (laughs) and my little CD player. Uh, yes, I'm old. Um, and I would just sit in there, sometimes sleep there all night. And then I would get up before my alarm, before my parents could make sure I'm up for school and, and jump back into bed. But animals have just always been there, you know. Um, being that introverted, scared kid growing up, you know, that animal was always there. I wasn't afraid of them. Um, and I always had, I don't know, my my grandma, my nana would always tell me, she's like, you just have this gift with animals. I'd always be able to call that cat over that... that um, that nobody could, you know, pet and uh, say, so, yeah, I'm an everyday animal whisperer. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, you know, as far as my animal welfare experience, um, I had already, I already had two adopted cats, 25 pounds each. 25 pounds. Yeah. Cats. They That's were a big cat, big boys. One yeah. of them was big in a good way. The other, we called him our fat boy. Um, <laughs> he was precious. And then I had a, um, I rescued a two-year-old Rottweiler. He was 80 pounds when I got him here in New York City, and he grew to 125 pounds within a year and a half. Wow! And so, in That's a, a nice tiny, dog. yeah, and in a tiny Queens apartment, I had three animals. There were no more animals. I wasn't even supposed to have the Roddy there, anyways. Yeah. But my landlord was cool. I just had to pay him off, um, and. Um, that was it. So I would just go, I couldn't rescue any more animals. So I would go to local animal shelters. Photography has always been a, a hobby and a passion of mine. Um, this is I, while you're working at the state department. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And I could be a pro photographer, but I'm not a sellout. So <laughs> <laughs> I won't touch that yeah. one, but go ahead. 
But uh, anyways, so I would go to the shelters, like walk the dog, play with the dog, and, and then snap pictures of him outside and happy or mm. the cats playing. And I'd give him catnip and you know get great pictures. Instead of them in a cage or a kennel, mm. they put it on their website or social media, and the adoption rates go up. That actually works. Oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. Know? So if you can't adopt an animal, but you know how to shoot photography or you're a TikToker, go to the local shelter and make some videos and help these people. You know, it's and that was my mentality. Um, and then I watched um, Anthony Bourdain was a, a, a one of a hero of mine, a mortal hero of mine. Oh, he and was I, awesome. Yeah, and I have very few of those, and um, so I don't say that lightly. But I watched his very first show on CNN of Parts Unknown. Mm. Um, it was on the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts, and he used – what was so unique about that show was he would use cuisine and, and local food as a way to you know, uniquely and delicately um, relate it to you know, each culture's side of the conflict. And um, He was so cool. Man. Yeah. I mean he, he set the path for the rest of my life. I read all his books, all that. And wow. I used to go to um, his restaurants and – in New York, eat oysters, all that, and hopes that maybe he'll walk in. Never happened, unfortunately. But um, yeah, he's a legend. Uh, there, I don't think we'll ever have another one like him anywhere close to it. But I watched that show, amazing, and I wasn't tired. I actually had to be up early the next day to go to LaGuardia um, to be on the tarmac for uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton coming in. And um, but I wasn't tired, so. Even though I had to get up at you know three thirty in the morning, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch this thing coming on um, on next, which is about the Tusk Trust Foundation, what the royal family is doing in Africa with them to preserve and, and protect African wildlife. So I'm the type of guy where if if I can't do something about it, abuse whether it's people or animals, but especially animals, I don't want to see it. I know it exists, but if I can't do anything about it, mm. why torture myself? Because, like, I was still in a mode where if I see it and it irks me that much, I'm going to try to maybe find this person. You want to go fight it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you torture a dog? Well, stand by. Warrior mentality? Yeah, no, yeah. it's like, how, how do you like it? Um, and uh, so I started watching this show, and it was cool. And, you know, I honestly didn't have an interest in, in really going to Africa because I've been overseas so much. I'm just like, you know, I'm going to stay home. I, I'm, I love my country. And uh, stay into the mic if you don't mind. Yeah. yeah. So I had this mentality of not wanting to leave the country after having served and doing all that. I was tired and I just wanted to enjoy my country, the one that I fought for. And this documentary, they had no, no uh, hints that any type of animal abuse would be in there. Holy shit. It rocked my world. The first and this was three punches to the face in a row. Boom, boom, boom. The first one was an elephant laying on a, a tar road. Well, asphalt road. We call them tar roads in Africa. No face. The trunk is set. There's no eyes, no mouth, brain. It, it's blood and flesh. And there, I remember there's there was a tan land cruiser sitting there and... And it was a huge elephant, massive, and immediate. Like I want to cry right now thinking about it. Yeah. And then the next scene were dead park rangers laying in a row, 
And now all of a they sudden, they were showing this on TV. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. And now I'm like, okay, this is this is a war. This is more than this is more than just about animals. This is dangerous stuff. Yeah. And then the third one was a female rhino. This was a video. And I remember it vividly like it was just like I remember 9-11. They, the poachers got tranquilizers. They acquired tranquilizers off the black market because a gun goes bang and you can hear it. A tranquilizer gun makes a very soft noise. Nobody's going to hear it. They don't hear it. The rangers aren't alerted. They do their thing with ease, take all the time they want, and they're out. So they put this girl to sleep. Her calf went missing in the bush. Eventually, they found the calf dead because it needs its mother's milk, and it'll dehydrate, and it's hot. And um, she woke up missing her horn. Nasal cavity is fully exposed. There's blood. It's just a gross scene, and I say that without no disrespect to that animal. And all of those emotions from war, and as I watched, dude, there were tears just flowing i mean literally i remember seeing the drops and all of those emotions that just like will ferrell says in the movie i put a glass jar of emotions you try to cope with it you think you're doing better so oh yeah i don't need therapy uh med i don't need any of that stuff man i'm doing great no i was i was miserable and i had no idea i thought i was happy but i was actually miserable and I was taking all that, you know, I still had some anger, but like just the depression, the anxiety, um, there's a lot of just humiliation and confusion and embarrassment even of going to war that you experience. It's not the traditional way to explain it. Um, and you just put it in that jar and you super glue it shut and you just plan on coping. But eventually something's going to bring that out. It's going to shatter that jar. And that rhino, um, while she may be, you know, may have been killed and and passed on, that rhino saved my life because that rhino shattered that jar. And in that moment, I felt everything that she felt in a sense without the the pain, but in a, a different kind of pain. But I saw embarrassment. I saw humiliation, the confusion um, the, the sadness, like, where's my baby? Um, and I was embarrassed at humanity. Mm. Like we are the most powerful species on this planet. And that animal, a dinosaur, this beautiful mother just got tortured, essentially died the most. Could you imagine having your face cut off? And living and then just having to die a slow death. Yeah, and that's the other while, thing. While your child's missing. And when you're watching this video, she's still alive. She's still alive. And they were they were filming it. And God bless them for doing it. I don't know how they did. But I had somebody say, like, why would they film that? And I'm like, thank God they filmed that. Because people need to see that. We need to thank Those people are heroes for filming that. What are they going to do for it? They're waiting for veterinarians to get on site to put her down. And you know what? People got to see that. And if I ever find out who did film that, I'd, I'd hug them because, I mean, I would still probably be living that miserable life. And now I get to actually have a purpose of, of going and wor- saving animals and empowering veterans to do that. But it was in that moment. 
And I'm telling you, I, I was punching walls. I, I didn't sleep probably for weeks. I called out of work for five days. This is on Friday. I told them that I was sick. And the special agent in charge calls me up on Friday. He's like, hey, dude, you got to come to work on Monday. I was like, eh, I don't think so. And he's like, no, seriously, you need to come to work because they're going to take um, – uh, the, they're going to punish you if you don't. And I'm like – so I'm talking to my mom. She's like, you can't go to Africa. And she'll tell you now. She's like, I knew that you were going to go. Like, I knew it because I'm stubborn as all hell. And um, but some people, um, you know, my buddy Brent had said to me, he was like, dude, you work at the State Department. That's a powerful place. Why don't you just go talk to some people and maybe there's something that the government could do? Um, and so there was um, a U.S. ambassador to the U.N. for I want to say he was for management and reform. He is his name is uh, Ambassador Joseph Torcelli. He's actually the uh, Pennsylvania's Treasury Secretary right now, I believe. Um he was one of those guys when I was working with him and, and going places with him, he, uh, he didn't treat, treat me as like, you know, some of the other diplomats do. Mm-hmm. He's like, he's, you know, if you're one-on-one with him and driving him somewhere, he's sitting in the front with you and Ryan, what's going on this and that. And so I felt comfortable to go to him and I said, sir, um, ambassador, like, are you aware of the poaching thing that's going on? And, um, he said, no, why? What's up? And I just kind of spilled it out for him a little bit. How long is this after you watched that? Oh, dude, this is maybe a month. Because I was already rounding up, like, the Marines that I served with. Like, yo, dude, you want to go? If I get this funded, do you want to just go over there and kick so some right freaking away, ass? Oh, dude, yeah. Right away when you watch this, you're like, we're going to do something. Oh, yeah. Yep. And you're like, you don't really know what I yet, did not. But you're get, like, yep. we're going to do it. Oh, I didn't care if I got fired. I didn't care uh, if... Yeah, I was broke. I did. I had no. I didn't care. I didn't care if I died doing it. Like I was ready to go. Jason born on the bush, and I had no clue about what was going on over there yet. So I wanted to get on the ground just to see it and observe, to see if the skills and experience that I have from war and from the military apply here. Can we go back to seeing that rhino for one second? Like when you were first yeah, watching the doc. So you described that really, really well. And one of the things, one of the terms you used a couple minutes ago was that's a dinosaur right there. And I'm glad you did that because when I look at rhinos and elephants, especially, that is exactly what I think. Like they don't, it's, it's a majestic creature. And they even have that thing. Especially with elephants, but you could say it with rhinos too, where they're so big that like their motions look like they're in slow motion. It's like they're larger than life. They look how we would look to, you know, how we probably move to some insects and stuff. You know, like we probably move really slow to them, even if we're walking fast or running. Cause never thought like, about that. Yeah. Right? I, I yeah. don't know. That with could the be, insect thing, I've never thought about that. That might be the dumbest thing I ever said. I don't know. But that's like how it appears to me. And so it adds this element of almost like their whole life is in 18 frames a second, like an old school movie, you know? So I love how you looked at it and had the emotion as if it was a human being dying because to me the full theme that I get seeing, and we're going to talk all about the poaching and how this all works. Like some people are like, well, why was it dying? We'll get into that. But like when I look at the populations going down because these animals are being slaughtered, let's call it what it is. It's, it's brutal slaughterings. It's like we're taking away our culture as a people. These are, these are species that if we, 
if we rid the world of rhinos and elephants and our kids don't know about it, forget what will happen to the ecosystem. We'll talk all about that today. But we are getting rid of the history that has built the earth as we know it. You know, we are all originally from that part of the earth before everything started to separate out. You know, we lived among these creatures. We still do. We have continents where these creatures are. There's people living there. And it's like, did you look at that and have, obviously you were very emotional, but did you have like, you felt like you lost a human being looking at that? Like, was it on the same range or was it, what was it? I had what's called the flattened effect, which I still struggle with um, as a result of trauma and PTSD. And when I say trauma and PTSD, it's not in a poor me way. Like, yeah, I deal with it. I don't need sympathy or empathy for it. I just, something I deal with. So the flatten effect is I don't get, I don't go either way. I've got a baseline that I stick to. I don't get super happy or really sad and I go numb to things and it's something I'm working on. I'm a lot better position now, but if it had been a human, I, I, I wouldn't have blinked an eye. And that sounds really really um wow. morbid i guess but you know and i've had people say you know in the past like you know we've got problems here in the states and you know you're going over there and doing that it's like well wait a second you go serve sacrifice you know what we've sacrificed as veterans and then when you get out you can do that on your own but if you know armchair quarterbacking is is not a good look bro so back off um but now it's animals i looked at that in the same way that I looked at 9-11. People that were defenseless, being attacked, had mm. no power over that. None. Totally surprised. That animal had no defense. No defense. And it was, you know, the, the two situations, I don't compare them in, you know, in a way that's like one's worse than the other. They're not comparable, but to me and who I am as a person and being a kid growing up that didn't have a lot of confidence. I wasn't a big kid. I was too skinny all the time. Didn't eat enough. And now like I went in the Marine Corps, I came out, I'm successful. Now I can hold my own. Um, now I'm not powerless to this situation. And the Marine Corps taught me that. And I'm forever grateful. I'm at the end of the day. And I always say now that, you know, Husband is my greatest title. I love my wife. She's amazing. But, you know, outside of my marriage, being a Marine is once a Marine, always a Marine. And right. we live that. Um, and so I walk that. When I walk out in public now, I'm a Marine at the end of the day. I'm a Marine. Like, yeah, I'm Ryan Tate. I'm the president of, of Vet Paul and the founder. But I'm, I'm a United States Marine. Mm. Um, that was my first big achievement in life it's where i learned how to stand for the the defenseless and in this case not just the defenseless but the voiceless and so i looked at that animal the same way that that i sat there powerless in my english class watching so many innocent people die and when i watched that in english class i did something about it i i built up the courage the first time in my life to to take a chance it was uncomfortable but i was comfortable being uncomfortable in that situation and you know i had known that the state department 
you know, it was cool at first walking around in a suit and you got an earpiece, whatever, driving armored vehicles. But I, after a while, not long, it wasn't, it wasn't a while. I realized, man, this sucks. It's middle of the summer. It's Mm -hmm. hot. Um, I'm dealing with bureaucrats all day, a government that just like, it's a government. Yeah. Like I'm a critical thinker. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They don't have emotions (laughs) and nor should they, but you know, I'm a critical thinker. So I'm bringing in all these things. Oh, we should do this. It'll make us work more efficiently. We were, you know, is the 08 housing crisis and we're in debt. And I'm like, no Christmas trees for this office this year. Cause that's money we shouldn't be spending right now. <laughs> like this is that, you know? Yeah. Um, and of course the, the office bought a Christmas tree. So of course um, they did. Yeah, of course. What, right. Creature of habit. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. But um, I was, you're kind of answering the question for me. I just want to make sure I, this might've been before camera at some point or early on. I'm not sure what, cause we, we've been spending the, the day together, but at any of those jobs you had, even just working as a day trader where you had success and then working at the State Department, did you never feel a sense of purpose compared to what the Marines was? And now this was like, oh, now I – wow, this has purpose right yeah. here. Zero purpose. Zero. Mm. And I was trying – it's trying to force a you know a square into a round hole. It's not right. going to happen. And I was trying to force that myself, like, oh, I'll go to college. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make so much money. And I'm going to have a, you know, my dream was to have a, a sport yacht, like a smaller one. And I buy all these real estate properties in the Caribbean and, you know, Airbnb them out. And I just drive from one. Of, God, I would have been miserable. Um, money is not happiness. No, it is not. Yeah, and there's that saying, well, you don't have a yacht or, you know, you, you know, this or that, you know, look at what I bought. No, bullshit. I have, I actually have empathy for you. Yeah. Um, there's nothing, making money and having a purpose for people that are donors, those are not mutually exclusive. You can find your happiness by supporting. We need those people. We, I mean, without without these people, I don't do what I do. So they, yeah. they enable uh, our veterans to- and We're going to talk about yeah, them today yeah. too. Yeah. I, I like how you put that. You, you're saying that you can, like with money- it can help, yeah. but it's, it's not going to get you there. Yeah, and the temporary. Pe- the people who accrue a lot of money and therefore, let's call it what it is. We know how the world works. You have some level of power, whatever that is. The people who do that and then put that to work to do good things, in the sa- to contribute and make better the environment or things in other environments that, the, that they would like to see that they would have loved to have around them while they were on their way to making money. You know what I mean? Yep. It's like this, if that makes sense, that's a convoluted way of putting it, but it's like this cycle of, mm-hmm. of trying to say like, all right, I've been, I've had the privilege of being able to work hard and do what I do and make all this fucking money. And now I'm going to make sure that it's even easier for someone in the future so that maybe people who didn't have an opportunity will now have some sort of opportunity. And even in something like this with vet Paul, it's like, well, Maybe I can help out an entire an entire continent's culture. To yeah. Say nothing of the rest of the world. Like, what if what if that helped their economy twenty, thirty years from now? Yep. You know, this is this is a this is a good slippery slope mm-hmm. right here that these people do. So they we'll talk about them later sure. specifically, but they deserve a lot of credit, and I I Absolutely. notice that a lot from people like that. Absolutely. The wildlife is the one natural resource that you can't take from Africa yeah. and transplant somewhere else. Like, if you don't protect it where it is now, it'll go away and it won't come back. Yeah. Extinction is forever. Yeah. So you you went to this guy, Torricella, <clears throat> you were saying. Joseph Torricella, Ambassador Tor- Torricella. Joseph 
Torcella and I haven't been in the government in a while, so I don't I don't know what you would call I guess um Secretary Torcella. Um and I said, Sir, you know, like I said, he's one of those guys where you just you don't feel like you're talking to an authoritative figure. He just he's genuine as a leader and I love that. Like yeah. um and without him, there's no way we'd be sitting here right now either. There's so many people that have played this this, you know, roles in in the success of that Paul and and um and you're still actively working when you talk to him for the first time, too. Yeah. And you're on the yeah. job. Like, hey, by the way, I'm probably going to be leaving here to do this, so yeah. you want to help me out? That's pretty cool. He's yeah. like, bet. Yeah, bet, right? Um, so we should, we should make a shirt for him that says bet on it. Brilliant. <laughs> I'll design it for you. Thanks, man. We'll figure it out. Appreciate that. But yeah, I went to him and I said, sir, um, do you have like 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes? I can stop by your office later. Um, I just got something that I want to tell you about. Cause my buddy Brent was like, and he, my buddy Brent was, most of my friends thought I was nuts. They're like, that'll never happen. Yeah. I, I hear you. That sucks, but this will never work. This idea of sending veterans out there. But my buddy Brent said, Brent Dixon, he said, dude, I believe in you in this. I remember standing on his um, rooftop deck in the lower East side or excuse me, the East village. And um, I told him about it and he, as an actor, he could see like, yo, he's not an actor and he's really screwed up about this and you got to find that person to support you. Cause you can't do it on your own always. I mean, some people might be able to do it, but it helps. And just because you meet 2200 people that don't believe in you, there's still somebody there. Don't, don't let that do not let that, um, in your dreams or your, like if it affects you so much that it hurts right here in your gut, that is your brain dumping chemicals yeah. that are telling you, you need to do something about this. And if you don't, my, my biggest fear is not dying. My biggest fear is dying with a regret. Mm. And that would have been a regret had I not done it. Had I not done it. And you know what? Had I done it and failed, I would have kept trying it and kept failing until I died. I would have died trying. And you had never been to Africa never. at that point, right? And I just told someone, too. They were like, yeah, we're thinking about playing on a safari. We should take some friends. This And I'm like, nah, dude, I'm good. I'm good. Nah. You needed to see something yeah. alive there. You Think. needed to see. Yep. Yeah. I feel you. So you you talked to this guy. That's a month later. How soon until, like, the concept of Vet Paw so, happened? So Ambassador Torcella said, you know what, let me do some research on this. Because he actually gave me the time of day and didn't just, you know, yes man me. He So he actually looked into it. All of a sudden I get a, a phone call at my my uh, desk and it's his secretary that says, hey, can you can you come down here in like five minutes? Ambassador Torcell would like to see you. So we sat in there and he goes, Ryan, there actually is um, a serious problem out there and there are certain people in the government that have noticed this. And he upped my security clearance so that I could, um, you know, review some information in a SCIF, which is SCIF stands for secret something. Yeah, it's anyways. It's a place that you can. Re- it's soundproof. You can't, you know. Secure viewing. Yeah, I should know what it stands for. Sensitive compartmented information facility. No. Yeah. Is that it? something? That is it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, SCIF. Yeah. Okay, SCIF. Yeah, so he reviewed, uh, or he got my security clearance up. I had already had a um, a, um, top secret SCI, which is the highest standard, and then he got another one up so that I could review some other documents and information. And so I put together a proposal. He said, put together a a one-pager and a three-pager, 
and um, bring it to me and let's see if there's, you know, anything that you can do on a, in an official capacity. Mm. And oh, so he was thinking government. Yeah, you, you know, chances are slim, but you know what? He's not gonna he's not gonna shoot this down because that's good. He's just not that kind of guy, right? You know, and um, so I put together these proposals. He sent me throughout the government to meet with people because if he's an ambassador, you can't turn him down. And what I started noticing was the State Department is an absolute minefield. They're like, who's this guy that works in security detail stepping on our territory? And they gave the initiative. So President Obama came out. He said, we're going to designate $12 million to supporting um, anti-poaching in Africa and uh, counter-trafficking of wildlife parts from Mm. Africa. $12 million doesn't sound like a lot, and it's not. But, hey, at least he put something towards it because nobody else seemed to give a shit. It's not here. It's somewhere else. It's it's a – yeah. So – Ambassador Torcella noticed this minefield and how I kept getting tripped up. So in the meantime, he's introducing me to uh, ambassadors for the UN, to the UN from these African nations, and they all got it. Every single government official that I met with related to their presidential administration for their president to be reviewed on if this is something they wanted, and they all wanted it. Mm. All of them. They got it. Because it is a serious problem. And um, however, while that's going on, I take time. um, I take the day off on a Friday. I go down to D.C., take the train down there in a a civilian capacity. I'm not working. No State Department. And um, I go into the public forum, President Obama's public. um, uh, It's a public forum on President Obama's. Council for Wildlife Trafficking and, and Anti-Poaching in Africa. They oh, were, so they were doing something on this. They too. were discussing like, what to do with the $12 hmm. million. So I go in, um, and uh, I was going to ask a question towards the end. There's a Q&A for the public. I put my name on the list. Ryan Tate didn't even put State Department on it. And all that I was going to ask was, how much of this money will be designated to training rangers in a, in a Bush capacity, like a soldier capacity, because they're the ones dying. Um, and the park sacri- rangers. Yeah, the park Africa. rangers, yeah. yeah. And um, that's all that I was going to ask. How much of that? I'm just curious. I wasn't going to fight it. If you said zero, okay, cool, good to know. And I had an assistant secretary of state in her entourage. There was one woman in that entourage that literally the most disrespectful calls with her because I was – it was their territory um, – State Department's Agency for Oceans, Science, and they, they focus on oceans, right? Got it. How the hell that relates to this, I have no idea. <laughs> so Government will find yeah. a way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, right? So right before the Q&A starts, they all walk up to me, this whole Mean Girls Club, and they said... Uh, the Assistant Secretary of State says, um, I see that your name, you're, you're Ryan Tate. I said, uh, yes, ma'am, I am. Um, I see that your name is on the the list to ask a question. Is that right? And I said, yes. She goes, what are you going to ask? And I said, uh, how much of this money is going to go towards training rangers, the ones that are dying for this? She said, that's inappropriate. What? You are property of the U.S. Department of State. And if you ask that question, 
you will be fired. She said, I need it in writing by Monday that you will stop what you're doing, this little crusade that you're on, and go back to doing your job. Completely in shock. Now, all of a sudden, I am i don't know how I kept my mouth shut. It was the first time I've been, I've been in that type of situation and stayed tactful, cool, calm, and collected. <laughs> because this wasn't about me. This is a movie scene. This yeah. is like this is like a stereotypical like written in page ten of the oh. script. Then Jason Bourne goes off and does some shit. Like this is like oh and wow. Then, and here's the here's the the spit in the face as she walks off. This woman that had been giving me a hard time. That's part of her entourage, Christine. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so I'm gonna meet her one day, and I'm gonna say, "Ha ha, look, we're Good. doing it." But she said, "And by the way, we thought about it." And veteran skills in your experience has no place in Africa. It doesn't translate and walks off. <laughs> and I'm like, you, oh, like, thank God my mother's not here. She uh, would freaking drop kick you. Well, that's also like the level of intelligence on that statement is not high. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I did, you know well, what? That's a good way to put it. I've, I have empathy for her now. Yeah. That's, that's not a. Uh... Pretty counterintuitive when you think about the skills you guys got to do out there. They look at numbers and, and spreadsheets. And they have no right. idea what skills we have in the first place, let alone what we're going to So, do. yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't about um, actually saving the animals. It was about, nope, um, I just need to do something that looks good, and that we'll get promotions, we'll get bonuses, we'll get, you know, I don't know, longevity, sustainability in our career. I'm going to bless you because you understand how politics works. Now. Oh, yeah. Oh, I learned, I learned the hard way, man. I You're in my the, son. I learned the hard way. I'm jaded now. Yeah. But, um, so what I did was I went over to the White House and talked to somebody that I know in the West Wing, not the president. Um, I'll just – I'll leave it there. Um, so that, that was hashed out though apparently. Um, I don't know the details of it, but it was well, made – Well, that's good. It didn't work well for them. There was a combination. I wasn't the only person that was burned. But I went to work on Monday and I quit. I turned in my resignation wow. papers and I said, screw you. Like, that's, I mean, dude, that's part of the journey, though. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, that's the, that's the moment. That's, yeah. the, that's the day you actually took the step. But when yeah. you did this again, like, Bet Paul wasn't a thing. You hadn't even been to Africa before. Your buddies, now, one thing you had going for you that you've mentioned is your buddies had said, tell me I'm going. Like, they were in. The ones you would talk to. For right? the most part, um, I know a couple of their wives are like, absolutely not. <laughs> and so, big, tough Marines, some of the hardest dudes I know. Yeah, no. They so not all of them, but some guys were. Yeah, and yeah. Some most guys of them like, were, yeah. I'll, I'll do it. So what, what did you do? Like, how fast did this come together? I just started going to Africa on my own. And I stayed in touch with those ambassadors that Ambassador Torcella introduced me to. And so I got a, a presidential invite to Tanzania, and they said, we want, we want our rangers to operate like Marines. <laughs> and I'm, I, I actually kid you not, that's, I, I laughed similarly. No, I'm picturing this. Like, sounds awesome. I'm like, all right, dude, well, let's do it. Like, Thanks, dude. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I'm just glad you didn't say Navy SEAL like everybody else does, but <laughs> I love SEALs. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was cool. It was really cool to hear that. And so I just started observing, you know, teams of Rangers sleeping in the dirt, um, 
you know, we were going out on patrols in, in areas. They didn't have guns. They didn't have guns. We were making arrests. Well, they got bow and arrows? Uh, no, so we'll, they didn't even have that. So we tried to get them paintball guns. They got caught up in customs. <laughs> so so what we do, we went in and um, we went to the hardware store and we we got broomsticks and spray paint and electrical tape, duct tape and all that. And then we cut them up and made them look like guns, spray painted them. <laughs> And arrested poachers with them. This is what it you guys great. train with. Is what like yeah. there's some training exercises oh, yeah, you have yeah. to use like yeah. the like the wood gun or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So and these were rangers. So I mean, I was also with government rangers, but these were ones in community conservancies, like corridors that are in between the huge parks. But the corridors are where there's less. That's where the the animals are most vulnerable because they don't have these big ranger teams. They don't have the assets and resources that they have. So these community rangers. That's why it was taking so long to get the guns. They've been government rangers. Uh, they're supported by government rangers, but not federal government. Um, you know, they're municipal government. Got so. it. Okay. There's a lot of details to oh, go yeah. through here. So I want to lay out the land so that everyone can get on board. Like, we, we know your story. We, we, we understand why you were going over there to do this. There is a poaching problem. That's been the big elephant in the room, no pun intended. But, like, when you went over there and met with the president of Tanzania, you said you went over alone. But, like, at that point, did you have anyone with you? Once you got that meeting. Sure. So I would take a medic with me every time. It's smart. Someone from America. Strong, yeah, a veteran. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We weren't getting paid or anything. Most of this was, yeah, pretty much all of it was my money. And so the only thing was we're going to give these park rangers the wooden guns and we're going to train them as to how to look convincing. So we did that. Yes. Um, we, we did do that. But then we were also training government rangers in massive parks over there. Okay, so those are people who were armed. Yeah, I was going to anybody. Yep, they were armed. Okay. I was going to anybody and everybody that would invite me to come in and observe or help. Okay, that changes things. Yeah. So I, I'm forgetting there's also a lot of that. So you did have official people like on the ground. And once again, like these countries, you know, there's a few poachers in there who are bad people and they're causing all the problems. But these people, by and large, they want these animals. They love this, mm -hmm. you know, so they're motivated. So you don't have a problem getting you know recruiting people to be rangers and stuff like that obviously right no and the coolest thing was that when they found out that i was a veteran a marine corps veteran and that i had served in the middle east they were blown away they were so like wow i'm important because they know knew so much more about what was going on in the middle east than i had ever expected mm. and so they're like this guy is here to help us in our mission this is important what i do is important here yeah and um, and for me, it's like I'm sitting here, like, dude, I'm a just a you know pale guy, blonde head from Tampa, Florida, like, and you're accepting me in here to have dinner with your family and spend the night in your homes and you know trusting me with your life, like, it's it was pretty incredible. It was it was unique. It's awesome when people come together around common goals. And, yeah, and you see, you know, you can go across the world to a totally different culture, a totally different place, and you see how much you have in common. Mm -hmm. You know, especially towards something that's like a higher calling too, like this. It's it's very very cool. But when when you had explained seeing the rhino in the documentary and having its face hacked off, I said we were going to explain all the context here. So what I really want to do in laying the groundwork is let's go through what poaching is, what it involves. We'll get to everyone who's involved at some point. But when they're hacking off a rhino's face. 
which is the main thing. You protect all animals over there, but this mm-hmm. the, the rhino is the one that's critically endangered. When they do that, can you explain to people why they're doing that and what the value in that is with rhino horns? The reason that people are poaching rhinos, black rhinos, white rhinos, any subspecies of, of either – um, is their horn, which it, all it is is the same stuff your fingernails are made of. It's it's um, it's it's keratin and it's hair fibers that build up over time and they regrow. Um, they sell it in Southeast Asia, places like Vietnam. That's the primary um, consumer as a country um, because it's it's. Um, ancient medicine, Chinese medicine that says that it can cure cancer or, it's a you know, now. yeah. I mean, you could have, um, erectile dysfunction and, and a guy will chop up some rhino horn, powder it up, throw it in a capsule with powdered up Viagra, give it to the guy. And now all of a sudden he takes it, fixes that temporarily. And he's like, all right, I'll take a bunch more. And now he thinks that, you know, but that's where the rhino horn's worthless. It's that. worthless, but it can go for over a million dollars on the black market, depending oh. on the size of it. But they use it they use it as status symbols though a lot too. Now that's with elephant tusks. So there's nobody like I'll say this, if I'm you know, if if I'm ignorant to, you know, the whole poaching crisis and I'm dying of cancer. You know, who knows? Desperation, you know, desperate measures cost, uh, you know, result in desperate action. And so I may go and buy some rhino horn if I'm ignorant to it. So there's not a lot of, there's not even like a lot of status symbol with that. That's no, just. Think so. Now, sometimes like if there's a business meeting and some dudes will come in and right. sit at the table, this, this dude will throw the rhino horn on the table. Andy, you know. Andy was telling yeah. me, seems like Andy's been around the block with, with some serious business, but he, oh, yeah. he had heard. That in certain countries in Asia, a businessman will take the rhino horn out ahead of a meeting. He'll just put it, I guess, in like one of those holders, like on the middle of the table, not say anything. And when the contra party shows up and sits down, he doesn't even acknowledge it. But they're like, oh, wow, you know, this is a person. of It's like it it is that power symbol. So I guess that's got to be some of it. It's not just the medicine. Yeah. And an elephant tusk, that, I mean, it's China that's consuming 90% of the world's ivory. Yeah, the U.S. is a distant second. Yeah. Um, all that is is a status symbol. They take it and, I mean, the carvings are beautiful. It's incredible, but you can't just remove a, a tusk. It's connected to membranes and to the brain. Like, that's if they just ask. chip the end of their tusk, it's like ripping a tooth out of their mouth. Because it's really? a tooth. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a tool. Yeah, I knew it was a tooth, but like that's the part I didn't understand when I look at this. And I know obviously it has an explanation because otherwise we wouldn't have a crisis. But when you first hear about this with both, with a rhino, I'm like, you know, in my head, I'm like, well, can't they, couldn't they technically chop like right here? And then it's just like a nub, but they don't. They want to go down into the crease. Because it's quicker. If you're going to chop. That's why. Yeah. So you can chop a rhino horn off in 45 seconds. I've seen it done on, on security camera footage. Boom, boom, boom with an axe. They're it's taking gone. skin. Yeah. Now, if you so there are some reserves that are dehorning rhinos. We've worked, <sighs> we we have worked and still work with several that do. And you know these reserves are trying anything and everything they can to bring the value down of you know that rhino horn. So it will grow back. However, if it grows back even just a little bit, those the 
poachers, ju- they'll shoot it just so they're not tracking it anymore. They'll shoot the animal and then they will take a sliver of it. Cause even that, I mean, if a whole horn's a million dollars, a sliver of it is tens of thousands. But here's the thing. It's starting to affect the behavior patterns of these rhinos by not having horns. For like mating? Yeah. Now the male doesn't have this big horn to bully the, the woman into mm. mating. And so now the, the birth rates are slowing. And so we could, wow. you know, some people want to flood the market with 3D printed horns that, which they've found that, you know, are identical, like identical. But when you're talking about a horn that is worth over a million dollars, that is a total, and I, I appreciate anybody that's trying to help, but that's a pipe dream. If you think that people whose annual income is $1,000, you're going to drive that, that rhino horn price down to 10 bucks. Because that's the only way you're going to be. You got to flood a ton of it. Yeah. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. And then all they'll do, criminals adapt better than anybody. They'll find a way to distinguish between a real one and a fake one. Yeah, I feel like that wouldn't be. They could figure that out pretty easily. That one has a lot of holes in it. I, yeah. I don't think that's really feasible. But they, when they do this, and and it affects mating. I'm just trying to think of like solutions in my head, like you know, holding on to different it's possibilities here. But like. You do have a lot of conservationists working at yeah. on, on these different places. You guys are – we'll talk about it, but you're primarily in Kruger National Park in South Africa. No, 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 no. So we've worked in the Kruger area, but our headquarters is in the Eastern Cape. Got it. Okay. That's, but- that's where our headquarters is. So we have a permanent foothold there, but we have teams – we'll send training teams anywhere in Africa if funding permits to help. Right. You have a lot of people right now in South Africa though. Yes. Specifically. Okay. That's, that's what I wanted to get across. So – if you're having mating problems on dehorning, aren't there – because, you know, there's what, 20, 25, 26, 27,000 rhinos left in the world. There's like 6,000 black rhinos and mm-hmm. 20, 21,000 white rhinos, give or take, on mm-hmm. Africa – in Africa? Correct. Okay. So this isn't a crazy big number, which is also the whole problem here. If they did find a way to, in the short term – dehorn, which would just require taking off the top of it and keeping it short so that poachers don't try to get it. Couldn't there be some resources for conservationists, kind of like they do with horses a little bit, to make them mate? Or is that not feasible at all? You know, I'm not a biologist or a veterinarian or ecologist, so I, I don't know. I've never really thought about it. But in the end, even if you do... um. It does affect the the genetics of the mm. animal through its behavior. Mm. So um, what you might find is that like, you know, hey, let's say we do in this poaching crisis, which like if I need to die trying and I, I'm confident that Justin and the rest of our guys would say the same thing, we will. Um, but even if we were to stem that and that was the solution, their behaviors are going to be much different, much different. Right. So that's um, a problem. Yeah, it's a problem. And – I mean, white rhinos are one thing. They're very chill. They hang out in what's called crashes. That's a herd of rhinos. Black rhinos, though, are, are very, um, you know, they're very isolated. They don't, they don't like being around anybody. Mm-hmm. Like that's, I'm terrified of a black rhino in the bush. They will pummel you, and even after you're dead, they will keep pummeling you. It's terrifying. Um, so you better have a tree close to you, but. I mean, that's, that is a lot of, I mean, that's going to cost a lot of money and resources. 
And if if we could remove a horn, you know, the right way, if, if poachers would without killing it, some of them might, but it takes a team of people, a lot of money. You need a helicopter half the time. Why do you need a helicopter? Because you got to dart it from the helicopter. If it's a black rhino, you got to find them deep in the bush because they, they're uh, grazers, so they have this pointed lip. So they eat off of bushes. They love being mm. in this thorny bush, um, just very isolated. Um, so yeah, it costs a lot of it's a lot of resources, and you got to get everybody in Africa to do it, or it's not going to work. Right. You know. So there's twenty six thousand of them left, and let's assume that that's not really an option with the whole dehorning thing and and all that. Okay. When you went there, went like you guys started protection operations on like some scale in 2017 ish right it's been about five years since uh, vet paul officially formed no no we started in 2014 but was vet paul formed then yeah january 2014 we became a non oh i didn't realize yeah. i thought you were saying it was like five years no nah, so in 2013 i officially started going to africa got it okay yeah rhino does i want to search something then because this is going to make this point even more Powerful. Just Don't to worry, show, I have a diplomatic wave. Just to show yeah, people the effect of this, I'm going to put this chart in the corner of the screen right here. I'm going to make sure this is the right one. So these are the poaching numbers in Africa from 2007 to 2021. And if I'm looking, this includes, it just has South Africa separated from all other African countries. But if you look at it, right around the financial crisis time, we see a large, large spike, and it goes through the roof. And if you're looking at the screen right now, if you're on YouTube or Spotify, you can see this. But large, large spike, and it tops out, ironically enough, in 2014 and 2015, when now you're telling me you did start then. And I'm watching this chart, and again, you have a huge presence in South Africa, work with the government there and everything. Now I'm seeing an enormous, enormous downtrend in poaches per year, and this is on rhinos specifically. So... When you guys started doing this, the rhino population, I'm guessing, was lower than it is now overall. Yeah. Right? So you're increasing it, and they are critically endangered because there's literally only 25,000, 30,000 of them left. What number do we need to get to to remove them from critically endangered officially? That's a better question for the IUCN. Um, you know, and the IUCN oh, – help. There are some politics that go in with things as well. Um, so, who is the IUCN? The International—that's another acronym I've got to remember. I'll, I'll Google it. Go ahead. But like okay. they like leopards, I think should be listed as critically endangered, but they removed it because there's pressure from other places. International Union for Conservation of Nature. What do you mean pressure from other places? There are things that if if I say it on here, uh, um, yeah, we're going to be in deep shit. Really? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of politics in conservation, more than I've ever seen. You know, people always... Really? Yeah, and that's not everybody. You know, there are a lot of great people in conservation that you you will never hear of. People that you should know about more than me, because I'm just some Marine that... You know, had a skill to bring to this, and these people, you know, you know, they know more than I do. Um, I'm not a conservationist by trade. I'm a conservationist by, you know, dedicating my life and on-the-job training. Right. 
Um, so when I say that, I don't say it because it's an academic title that I earned. I say it because, you know what, I'm out there dedicating my life to it. But I think a lot of people get into conservation for the right reasons, and then it becomes this who can save these animals first or who does a better job at saving it. It's like for us, we don't give a damn who saves the animal. If you can do it better than us, mm. I'll be your biggest fan. Go do it. Show me. Go do it. But until I see somebody that can do it better, then I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Just focus on what you do and let us focus on what we do. If you don't like it, that's fine. But people have got to come to the table. This isn't about a a turf war. This is like that right Mm. there is if people don't wake up in conservation and stop bickering and stop, you know, backstabbing one another and creating these little alliances like that person doesn't do it right or this i've heard more people talk shit about good conservationists or about conservationists in general only to meet this person and find out you know what this is actually a good person and they don't have the full story on it and it's like that's going to be the reason these animals go go extinct is because of an ego driven turf war there's a lot of competing interests now that doesn't surprise me. That part, but there's also a very small pool of money. Then that's that's really what the the great downfall is. Because at the end of the day, it's a lot of people com- competing for few resources, and there's you know it, there's no one right answer to any of this either. And that's I think where the big fuck up happens is that there are so many people who think that their idea is the correct one, and that anybody who has a differing idea not only is is against you, but they're a detriment to the entire cause. Mm. Sounds like Democrats and Republicans. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Okay, so at first some of that, that, the the part about other interests didn't surprise me at all, but some of that did surprise me when you were saying it, and now that you put it that way, it, it shouldn't have. Because it's like anything else. People, it's not just people who are trying to get the same goal. There's also probably people infected in that who actually may not give a shit. You know, like just because someone labels themselves a conservationist, which uh, most of them obviously are, you know, I'm not, I don't want to have the wrong words put in my mouth, but it doesn't mean that you don't also get the same freeloaders who want power over things and who want to be able to make decisions. Like there are just people in this world that get off on that. I'm very lucky I'm not one of them. I don't know what that's like. I don't I, I don't like telling people what to do. I'm not a fan of being told what to do, but like you do whatever you do, man. You know what I mean? So when I see these organizations and governments are always the best example where they're just like they love it, right? Like they're all about like, oh, we get to tell you what the rules are. I don't get it, man. I don't get it. And this this should be the kind of issue that everybody can get behind. And also if you're literally talking about like endangered numbers, this really shouldn't be hard. There should be like a standard, like, oh, below 100,000. Yeah. I'm like, oh, below 90. Right? This shouldn't be like, well, you know, mate. It's like, well, where is there a lack of sustainability? Because you have to take into account that environments exist, animals eat each other and stuff too. Like, there's regular, you know, cross pollination in that way, whatever, whatever the term is there. So it, it shouldn't be that hard, but I understand if, if there's some of it you, you can't talk about publicly, and that's sad. But I full, yeah. I fully understand that. I'll say this: some there are some people in conservation that do it because they want to get awards. They actually have award ceremonies in places. Come on, 
I'm sorry, I don't think anybody should be celebrating or awarded until, you know, this species, these species, because it's not just rhinos and elephants, there's many more, are sustainable. Like, I've never gotten an award, nor do I freaking want one, you know. You could take that and shove it. That's money that you could have spent to, you know, equip a park ranger with new boots right. or something. Or instead of focusing on a, on planning that event, how about we focus on protecting these animals? You know, it's 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 become like a... Yeah, just a whole socialite's dream in some cases. Like, yeah, that's not great. No. But I mean, let's let's also focus on the positive here because that's yeah. what we're here for today. There's a there's a oh, lot yeah. of good in this. There's a lot of people doing that that have the passion you do to do something about this. I think it's incredibly refreshing to hear that so many of these governments are excited about this over there. That's yeah. that's a beautiful thing. We could all learn something from that, perhaps here. But looking around at at also the elephants and some of the other animals that you protect. These are different numbers and there's different levels of what's considered like a big problem as far as if they got below than rhinos because every species is different. But what is the current situation just, I guess globally, but especially across Africa with the African elephant? Like where do we stand on that? And you've mentioned some of the ivory trade. Can you just now fully describe like with the tusks and, and exactly what they do there as you did with like rhino horns? Yeah, an elephant's tusk is a tool. They use it for, you know, breaking branches off of trees, um, you know, marking things, um, also defending themselves against other rhino bulls or protecting their their young. Um, with the ivory trade, elephants are, have actually been on the, the rise since I got to Africa. When I got there, though, they were being f- killed faster than they can reproduce. It was unbelievable. And we actually started, we helped found uh, Tanzania's first wildlife crimes task force, which uh, was an intelligence-based task force. So instead of just going out into the bush trying to find a needle in a haystack, a couple poachers, you know, sometimes poachers can operate in groups of 80. Insane. Like yeah. the Serengeti, there have been like, there was a report that came in 120 poachers out there. And I'm like, oh, damn, there's only five of us. What are and, we? <laughs> and you're not talking about, by the way, people need to hear this. You're oh, yeah. not talking about five city blocks worth of land here. You're talking about hundreds of miles of land to cover where you got it. And, you know, you're letting the animals are Massive. wild, right? Yep. This is a lot of space to to keep an eye out for that needle in the haystack, that poacher who's trying to take down an animal. Yeah, so let's let's learn how to take a small unit of of men and women because there are a lot of women park rangers out there, and let's teach them how to learn, you know, work smarter, not harder. And we do that by gathering information and then exploiting that information um, to figure out where the best chances are that we'll run into these poachers. Um, mm. How about we take that information and figure out how do we not even catch them in the park? How do we catch them before they get to the park to go poaching? Because once they're in the park, that animal is in serious jeopardy. And it was so successful. We went in, we built the Wildlife Crimes Task Force, which consisted of 12 local park rangers that did exceptionally well. We taught them how to gather information and pose as informants or spies, if you will. Not government guys. They're, they were government guys. They yep. were. The, yeah. So these are the armed park rangers. Yep. And this, this okay. unit still stands today. Um, we taught them how to gather the information, um, befriend these poachers or middlemen, mm. the guys that are paying the poachers, going in and saying, hey, this is what I need. 
I'm going to send guys in to protect you, but you live in this community. You know where the elephants are, and we're going to need you to shoot. You're going to have to track them, and then you take the shot. These guys will protect you with AK-47s. So what year are we in? This was this? so we started doing this in 2014. Started doing, and I would wow. pose as a uh, you know the assistant of a rich tourist, hmm. and going, and I would buy ivory parts with protection of the government. Not ivory, excuse me. I would build up to that. So we might buy a snake skin or a leopard skin, which is also oh, you illegal. were doing undercover oh, yeah. ops. Yeah, wow, dude, I would have button cameras. Yeah, oh, um, you were one of these. Oh yeah, and. Amazing. Yeah, it was. It allowed me to see some pretty wild stuff. And when you think about it, when you're in that situation, I mean, these are guys that don't just poach; they traffic humans, drugs, firearms, ISIS in Africa. Up to forty percent of their operations, terrorist activities, are funded off of the illegal trade of elephants and rhinos. They are poaching animals to kill humans. Think about that. Wow. Nuts. Okay. Can so we... here I am, undercover, button camera. If they find that camera, I'm done. Yeah, you're... I'm unarmed and embedded, bro. I don't have air support coming in to help me. Is this your idea to do this? Yeah, absolutely. It was me and Oz and... Um, Who's Oz? Uh, he's a he's Green Beret. He's One, of your, guys. Yeah. One of your guys. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. And then... Afterwards, you start thinking kind of like you did in, in, you know, what if thing. And imagine that, man. I go into a warehouse or something to do a buy. They find that camera. But I had to have the camera for the evidence. Yeah. They find that camera. I'm never leaving that place. And is this all in South Africa? This is in uh, Kenya and Tanzania. Mm. Okay. These were in places where the police won't even go. So he, here's here's what I want to do now okay. just to... Because, again, there's so much here, you know, and, and people at home who have never thought about this. Like, even me, like, I, I had some awareness of it, but then going in and actually researching how this works, I'm like, wait, holy shit, really? Like, you know, this is such a huge racket, and all the layers to it are important. So we keep talking about the poachers. We keep talking about who they're killing among rhinos and elephants primarily, but it is other things too. And it's like it's like everything else. It comes back to money. But – how do we get all the way – like how many layers are there to this? So when you're doing an investigation and you're talking about this money could end up in the hands of ISIS, it's not like you're with very dangerous people as we covered. But it's not like you're sitting in there with Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, right? You're, you're in there with some local middleman who gets this asset to people like ISIS and other places. But it's not just ISIS. It's Boko Haram. It's – it's foreign countries who are just – they don't give a shit about the animals and they're using it as power symbols like the ivory in, in China and stuff. So from the ground level, how does it work? Who are the people actually taking the shot? How many people are in between? And then what types of people are on the other ends? Yeah, there's no size fits all with this. So there are – you know, in South Africa, it's not just a bunch of poor guys trying to feed their family or send their daughters to boarding school. Mm. These are guys that – I mean there are ISIS cells down there. There are. That are actually killing the animals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, really? these are the same guys. I mean, dude, they will, if they catch a park ranger, they will torture them. They'll kill their family, everything. The poachers. Yep. These are scumbags. Wow. 
this is exploitation to the max. I did not realize this. I yeah. thought it was all I thought the bottom level, like the people who were actually doing the dirty work were all like just some of the locals who they buy off. No, no. Now in East Africa, what'll happen typically is they'll go to a very remote village, they'll bring their their top dogs as the protection team. These are Al Shabaab, um, Boko Haram. These are uh rebel groups that are, you know, making money off of trafficking humans or drugs or you name it. These are bad people. They kill people and not just kill them. They kill them brutally. So they'll bring them in. They will exploit that man. And he will have to track that elephant for days. When they get there, he'll go in with them. He's there, his protection entourage, his protective detail with the semi-automatic machine guns. Meanwhile, he's using a gun that's probably 50 years old that he, buries in the dirt and pulls it out and it is a huge caliber it's 375 or 458 typically imagine that i mean it's an elephant round i mean it's huge um they go out he shoots the animal they hack the tusks off they take off with them he gets 0.5 percent of you know let's say it's a million dollars that guy will probably get thousand bucks and then they're out Now, then that tusk, those tusks go to the middleman. He has them transport them to the guy in the local hub, which is a a medium-sized metropolitan area. Then another guy will take that to the port where he's infiltrated. And money is changing hands at each layer, right? Money is changing. It just keeps going up. It's changing hands or it has exchanged hands in a deposit type of system. Mm. And... The big one is getting it through the ports. The ports, they they infiltrate the law enforcement there in most cases, so insider threats, and it's, it's not all of them. All you need is one guy. And they're able to smuggle it out with in normal shipping containers. They'll, they'll hide it in anything and everything they can. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And what's the metric again for... Elephant tusks, like how much does it go for per kilo kilogram? Um, at the peak, it was about eighty thousand dollars a kilo, I believe. And how the much? Eighty or ninety? I think for elephant tusk, it's always been a bit lower, but with rhino horn, it's about seventy, eighty. Uh, there was a time where I believe it was it was ninety thousand a kilo, yeah, which is crazy. But how much does the average rhino horn, and how much does the average elephant tusk weigh? An elephant tusk is what. 50 kilos depends yeah yeah and it also depends on the bloodline because certain bloodlines they call it the big tusker bloodline they have massive tusks and their offspring will have massive tusks other bloodlines are going down because they're being poached at such a rapid rate the big tusker bloodline is almost gone oh that's scary the first big tusker i ever saw was poached yep not while i was there but what was his name I, the elephant. I don't even remember, but I got an amazing picture of like him. Like Sabo or Safo, was that it? No, but I know the one that you're talking about, yeah. They um, did it. There's a great it documentary. Was in Sabo that he was yes. poached. Yeah, yeah. Yes. There's yeah. a great documentary on Netflix called The Ivory Game that yeah. I would highly suggest people watch. It's from 2016. Mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio was actually one of the people who helped fund it, I believe. Mm-hmm. Check he that. did. But they, they dedicated 
the documentary to that elephant who had his tusks were so big they were like touching the ground and then he was poached they crossed up. didn't they yeah i yeah. think so or they were huge they were huge it looked like almost fake and you're like oh my god and i googled it afterwards because obviously i knew he had been poached and i think he was poached in like 2014 or 2015 it's so sad man yep. i can imagine then you know his tusks were gone for millions of dollars tens of millions of dollars maybe all to sit behind some rich guy's desk and that's the scariest part, man. Like when you see they did this undercover work that you did, you were the same guy doing this stuff, just in a different place in this case. But some of the footage they have in that movie, very brave people, yeah. including like there, there was one reporter who was a, a native Chinese guy who was like, I hate the stigma that all of our people are like this. A lot of us, we don't want to see this happen. So I want to be a part of the solution. And he went in there undercover in these dangerous places and he got all this stuff on camera, and it's it's unbelievable how much of it they have. And there are some people that that say it's debunked the ISIS funding through the trade of uh, ivory and rhino horn. That's that's false. Why do they say it's debunked? I don't know. Everybody, every journalist seems to have an opinion or a theory, and you know they just they run with it. And it's like, well, first of all, why would you put that out there? But number two, I've witnessed it. I mean, I I had a bounty on my freaking head by these guys. Really? Yeah. How'd that happen? Because we were affecting their bottom line. And then the guy that took my place when I had to come back to the States for an illness. When was that? That was 2016, I want to say. They assassinated him. Who was that guy? He was another very passionate conservationist, and he ruffled feathers more vocally than I did. Um, And he was scared of nothing. And God bless him. He gave the ultimate sacrifice. I, I mean, how did this happen? Was it just like in his house? Like they came and got him? or like what No, was the... he was in a, a taxi in Dar es Salaam. They pulled up and pow, pow, right through the side of the... They didn't take a wall or anything. They took off. They ended up, I believe, catching a couple of them. But Holy yeah. shit. And who... It was a local poaching network that did it? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So do, do you have an active bounty on your head? Right oh, now. not now. Not now. But I mean, I can never do undercover work again. I was going to say, I, I didn't uh, know they removed those things. <laughs> no. I mean, honestly, it's like, I mean, I I don't think any of my guys really care. It's not, you know, it's, it's just like the military. You know, when you sign up to protect something, you sign up for something greater than yourself. Yeah. And we're just a handful of 8 billion people on this planet. And yet, how many rhinos, how many elephants and other species are left? We're expendable. They're more important to the sustainability mm. than this planet than just a handful of people. You know? It's an incredible responsibility to take on, but, you know, it's like anything else. Somebody's got to do it, you know, and you guys are you guys are stepping up and answering the call. And so these these networks, it is most of the final buying, like, taking possession of the product at the end, the ivory, the the rhino horn in Southeast Asia? Is that the... Yes. Yes. They actually, um, the Chinese government was busted um, smuggling ivory out in diplomatic pouches yeah. because you can't search diplomatic pouches. Yeah. They're bringing it out to a, a government-owned yacht off the coast and taking it home. Yeah, they they talked about that in that document. But in the meantime, yeah. they're sitting there saying, "Yep, uh, 
buying ivory is illegal in our country, but then they're doing that as a government, and then they just don't enforce the law. The one guy in there said something pretty powerful. He said the the future of the elephant on earth lies in the hands of the president of China. Perhaps. That's a heavy it's a heavy statement, but it goes to show you like you know in the materialism world and the short-sighted world. The the people who are buying this they're they're happy they're buying it. You know, they 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 don't they are not thinking about when they're not here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people, because they come from a lot of wealth, should be the people who are thinking about that more than anyone because they have the ability to affect that future in a positive way yep. moving forward. But they do the total opposite and they participate in a massively international criminal criminal syndicate. Yep. But I tell you what, though... Um... As long as there's a threat, we're there to protect. We've never had an elephant or rhino poached under our yeah, watch. Yeah, this is amazing. So you, Ever. Knock on not wood. one. And there's not a day that goes by that we get complacent or do not take the threat seriously. Once again, I'm going to put that chart in the corner that's right behind you so people can see this because this is directly correlated to when you started going over there. It is, and I think that's. it also has a lot to do – you know, we're a small team, and it's a huge continent. People don't realize how many times the United States can fit inside of Africa as a whole. So this is – you know, this is a lot of people coming to the table. But I will I will take credit for Vetpal in that, you know, we have spread a lot of awareness for this cause. There are a lot of people that support veterans that had no idea – that this is going on, and now they can relate to this. They've never seen an elephant or a rhino in their natural habitat. And now they're like, hey, that's my brother over there. Check out what he's doing, or that's my son, or you know what? Just Semper Fi or you know, Army Strong. Those, let's, I support you guys for life. I'm not a veteran. I don't have any family members, but I, you know, I love the military, and this is a great freaking cause. And you know, this is a world problem. This is, I don't care if you haven't been to Africa. This is a world challenge because we can fix this. Mm. We can. We don't have a choice. We have to fix this. We are humans and we are supposed to be stewards of this planet. And right now we're exploiting it for temporary gains. And that's all it is. Yeah. Now, how many guys do you have officially? I can't tell you. You can't tell me that. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. Anytime anytime yeah. I ask something that's private information. We, I will say we need more. We need okay. more. And we are not just a bunch of freedom fighters waving American flags, you know, coming in and force feeding. Um, and it's not a one size fit all to what we do. Um, we're force multipliers. So we want to empower the locals right. to and do this. Right, you've doing that yeah. with the Rangers. So... The zero number is probably one of the more powerful things I've heard because once again, as we said, you're you're gardening enormous territory. Even if you can't – there's a lot of countries you still want to go to in Africa that you're not doing anything right now because you need more people. Like the places you are are huge. So when you've been doing this for so many years now and you've never lost one, obviously what you're doing is working and it is still like catching a needle in a haystack though. So – somehow you're avoiding that and poachers either like aren't trying much or 
you know, like it's just incredibly effective. So without going into confidential details that can give away strategy on a 30,000 foot in the air level to someone who has never been over there like me and to all the people listening who don't really understand how this works. Like why, why is it you think that you haven't lost any animals and that there clearly are far fewer attempts to even try in the large areas where you are patrolling? Well, number one, there's a fear factor and an intimidation of, you know, war fighters that are now doing this. Are we fighting it in the same way as a war? No, but we we're capable and we will, if we have to. However, um, I give all the credit to the veterans on the ground and their counterparts that they work with. It's pure dedicate. It's don't do it unless you're all in. You mm. are 1 million percent committed to this. These guys, I called them up because I used to live in Africa and now I've got to keep the wheels turning so I don't get to go over there and live full time like they do. You still spend a lot of time there though. I do. Yeah. yeah. And so at the beginning of COVID, I called him up and I, I was prepared, myself and our director of operations, who's a, a force recon scout sniper. What's his name? Lynn Westover, the Sherpa. And we talked to each other on the phone. We're like, hey, this COVID thing's getting real. So are you ready to go to Africa? Because it's just probably going to be you and me just in the bush. These guys are probably going to want to go home. Called him up, said, guys, um, I totally respect and understand if you need to go home to support your families. Um, totally get that. Just tell me now. So that way I know what to expect. And every single one of them said, absolutely not. No, it's not happening. Wow. These animals are my life. And I don't know how I could live knowing that I abandoned them and something happened to them. Now the, the whole purpose thing though, too, which I would imagine is very similar for all you guys who are there on the ground, but like you have you've talked with me about it off camera like you have veterans on your team who are dealing with some of the same things that that you dealt with yourself and and the lasting effects of seeing combat whether it be full-blown ptsd or any of the trauma that comes with that it seems to me like the the power of doing this not only gives you that purpose in in protecting literally like the survival of species it's a very powerful thing in the context of history but also you know, being out in nature, being having the habits of duty again, you know, it's putting on the uniform, carrying the gun, protecting, you know, it helps them. It's it's therapy, it seems like. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. It's it's ecotherapy. E it's I real. Like that. Ecotherapy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's a dream of mine one day just to have, you know, a program where veterans can come out. Don't don't pay for anything. Just we'll get sponsors to pay for you. You come out and you just get in wildlife for a portion of your life, a week, a month, and just decompress. Everything is okay. This animal right here, this massive elephant, that's what matters in life. Mm -hmm. That is the most innocent, pure, um, you know, being of of all of God's beings. You know, it's right. come and see. Screw this political stuff. Come out here and just calm down. Just don't think about anything but these animals. It'll cure you. It really it does so much. I don't even know. I can honestly say I don't I don't I don't know if I'd be on this planet at this point if not for these animals. Wow. Yeah. It was I'm, that I'm bad not, at one point. It doesn't it doesn't surprise me though at all. Like it's just 
I mean, I'm an animal lover. So, like, when I look at this stuff, I've never stood with elephants. I've seen it on the HD videos, and I'm like, this shit is wild. It's like, it's just, they're larger than life because they literally are, you know? And rhinos, same exact thing. You you look at them, like, when I look at the structure of their face. And by the way, Paul drew this on your... I know. On your mug. That's hilarious. He drew that in like two yeah, seconds. Guy's, guy's an all-star. talented as all hell. I hate guys like that. Just do everything good. <laughs> you, you turn around to him, you're like, all right, Paul, draw some. And I'm thinking I'm going to get like a stick figure. He comes back with a fucking Picasso. But, you know, like it, it, it is not at all surprising to me that, that whether it be veterans or anyone that goes over there, like all the people who are generous – generous enough to donate or, or help with the cause i'm sure they feel the same thing like if i get the chance to go over there i'm sure like something's gonna hit me that can't hit me right now just because you see it in person and you're like wow this might be here a thousand might let's let's make sure it's here a thousand yeah. years from now when i'm history like whoa it's heavy man i've never met a person that has come to africa with vet that did not for the first time that did not return back to the states obsessed with it everybody on this planet should have the opportunity to see these animals i don't care if you're rich poor everybody needs to see these animals it changes your life once it's in your blood it's it doesn't go away yeah now along the way when you guys have been on your patrols and doing all the things you do you know as you've mentioned a bunch of times today including worse than i had imagined with with the poachers these are very very dangerous people they will they have no problem shooting i did know there were firefights and stuff i just didn't realize that they were like literally actually some of the terrorists sometimes oh yeah but like what have you been in situations where you guys have had to take people out or have you mostly avoided that because they don't so they don't try guys like us have squeezed the trigger enough and what makes us unique. And I think a lot of people in the public have this concept that they develop in their head where, oh yeah, go over there and, and, you know, let's, uh, you know, let's send our best over there to just wreck these guys, take them out. No, no, no. That's how you create a war. Uh -uh. No, at all costs, you need to prevent, like, do not pull that trigger. I'm saying, so let me be, let me be more clear about that. Cause I want to talk about this too. There's some really cool stories with that, with you turning people around. I love that. I'm saying though, they will shoot at you. Oh yeah. So you, you, I would imagine you've been in situations where they start shooting and I'm, I mean, you got to do what you got to do. It's survival mode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even in some of those situations, we haven't had to fire back. Really? Because they don't even know who we are. And then once Hmm. they realize, wait a second, something's different here. Then they're like they're not going away. They're keeping up with me, whatever. Like we, Trevor chased down a guy that had a, an East African too. These guys win marathons all the time. Trevor <laughs> chased down a, an East African in the bush that had a machete and just had just hacked one of the Rangers, you know? Yeah. We've, we've had shots fired at us and still, um, if that doesn't deter us, then they're, they're real worried. I mean, do you guys lose? park rangers somewhat regularly to murder Um, so i've lost friends that are park rangers um right now where we work no i mean but i mean in the congo they just lost a whole squad of rangers total ambush i mean it happens wow yeah but when the whole like legislating through peace with this where you can actually 
get on a level with some people, maybe some of the lowest players who are literally locals, I guess, like trying to feed their family and whatever, and they get caught up in this awful thing. But like you had had one story you told me on the phone that sounded like it was the kind of common way of approach that you've adopted in, in dealing with some of these people when you actually catch them, where there was a poacher and he ended up working for you guys. Is that what happened? Yeah. So I don't believe in torture in any level. I mean, maybe, you know, what Osama bin Laden or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like, I just, I never try to pretend like I've walked a mile in someone else's shoes. So I bring a certain level of empathy to what I do. And I'm confident that all of our veterans do the same. Um, so I'm getting ready to go into the jail cell. This guy had already been apprehended by that the um, the Wildlife Crimes Task Force. And so I get to the ranger station, and the, that ranger says, I need you to interrogate him. Go in there, and I think you should inflict some force. And I'm like, wait, well, <laughs> say that again? What, what, are you, what are you asking me to do? He's like, here's the power tools. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he goes, torture him. And I'm like, damn, nah, dog, that's not what we're going to do. And I said, but I'd like you to watch. And so I went in the room and there's two poachers sitting uh, zip tied. You know, they're flexi cuffed against the wall. They hadn't slept all night, I'm sure. And they may have already been tortured for all I know. And I looked him in the eyes and I said, hey, this is who I am. I'm not here as, you know, a white American to tell you that you're wrong in any way, shape, or form. I said, I love these animals that you're involved in killing. I said, but what I want you to know is that your communities have a lot of potential. Ecotourism. There's there's ecotourism here already. Mm. And it's expanding and growing. And by killing these animals and poaching them, you are destroying the future of your children and you're dishonoring your, your communities and your tribe and honor's a big thing there. And I said, so if you help me, if you help me go and get these guys that are still out there and getting ready to go poach, cause it's the night before the full moon cycle. And we know that they're in the communities. We just got to figure out who they are. They blend in. They're, get, they're already sleeping in people's homes. They come from far away to these villages, and they make them let them sleep in their home. Full moon's good for poaching. Oh, yeah, because you don't need a flashlight. You don't even want it. Mm. You don't want it. You can see it's it's daytime. Right. And so I said to them, if, if you help me, I will see what I can do about getting a lesser sentence for you with the judge. And... If you follow specific instructions and you are deemed as uh, uncorrupt, you may try out to be a park ranger potentially, oh, or you to told work that. or to work for a park ranger unit. You told him that right in there. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And what happened? One of them, I came back the next day, and one of them still wanted nothing to do with me, and uh, that ended up changing. Um, because he saw what the other guy did. The guy said, I'm going to take you to every home of a poacher that I know of right now. So we went door to door. Door to door. Making arrests. We arrested the totally dismantled in 36 hours, the 
poaching network responsible for 18,000, up to 18,000 unaccounted elephants in one year. In one year. Yep. And previously they had said 10,000, and then a parliament member who of Tanzania who was, was actually the top dog in poaching and fighting it was like, no, we only put that amount at the time. It's actually 18,000. Holy shit. How many people were in that network? Uh, there was over 100. The ones that were in there, because we, we dismantled their front lines in 36 hours, I think we made like 40 arrests. Then they were able to get information out of those guys by not torturing them, by meeting them, you know, human to human and finding common ground and then educating them. And then boom, they get the information. They made over a hundred arrests. Yeah. Wow. Now, what was the thing? I don't know if this is the same thing, but you were telling me earlier downstairs about some missions where you guys literally went in like military missions where you went into poachers houses at night, once you knew they were poachers and were able to arrest them without their wives even waking up? Yeah, we've Was taken that the uh, same thing. Yeah, and, and by the way, when we do this, we're, we're assisting, advising and assisting. I only jump in to do this if I see a potential, like, breakdown. If a ranger is not um, following the techniques that he was taught. I'll pull security, perimeter security, with my guys, but I will only go into a home after they've taken it, or at the time after they had taken it, or um, if shit hits the fan in there. Mm. But so no, 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 I don't want no, and I, I don't want the locals to say like, look at me as an American being like, what the hell, you know? Well, when that American leaves, rumor gets out that American leaves, then then we'll start doing it again. Right? No, no, no. I, they need to see. Uh, they need to be fearful of those rangers and respect their authority. Now we're on on the hierarchy though, like. Or not hierarchy on the organization chart. Where do like the local police and then state police tie in? Is that are the rangers a part of that, or are they their own like separate entity? So they're part of um, a wildlife or tourism uh, ministry. Okay, but they do work hand in hand with police. So once they're apprehended, there's an initial interview uh, with them to get information, and then as soon as the police get there. They finish up their interview, and then the police will take him into custody Got until he sees it. the judge. Got yeah. it. Okay. So there, there is like a, a teamwork procedure yeah. in that way. Yeah, But absolutely. the rangers are the ones going, open up FBI. 100%. Right. Okay. Yep. Or FBI open up. Got that backwards. Okay. So at this point, if I could say to you right now, I have a magic wand, you're going to get everything you need. And by everything you need, we're going to stop this problem across, let's say, the entire continent of Africa. How does that work? How much manpower do you need? You have, you're asking the wrong question there. Okay, what's the right question? Well, the, the answer is the education of the populace that's that's purchasing all of this. You have to stop the marketplace because... As long as a market exists, you're going to be able to convince poor people to to yeah. take part in all this kind of stuff. It's it's exploitation all the way down. So you, what we're doing, we're not solving anything. We're just we're protecting as best as we can. But solving the problem, you have to go so much deeper into another culture and convince them that this is this is the wrong way. And it takes generations to change a culture. 
and I'm certainly not going to be able to go to China or, you know, in change of culture as, as an American citizen. That's not going to happen. Yeah, that'll see, make them buy. That'll make it more expensive and see, more of a demand. I don't know. Sadly, I don't know how yeah. possible that is because there are so many different cultures involved. So what I'm saying, and that is a good clarification, but maybe I could put this another way. If we assumed that not just Vet Paul, like all organizations who are good, who are doing this kind of thing or are involved in the process, however that works, if we could assume that those criminals are going to exist and those that marketplace is going to exist, seeing as you guys in the real estate that you've been covering have had zero deaths, right? How do we get to a point where all the relevant countries that have these creatures – also have people like you protecting such that maybe the death toll isn't zero, but the death toll is five a year. You know, it's it's very limited to the point that we have hundreds of thousands, millions of rhinos and elephants maybe 50 years from now. Sure. Vet Paul needs the ability to deploy up to 20 veterans at a time. And some of those veterans will be designated towards training teams train, advise, and assist throughout Africa in very remote locations where there are no support of rangers. They're just on their own. We need vehicles badly. We need trucks right now. Like, it's it's a no-shit serious thing. We need a vehicle upgrade bad. I need six new trucks. I need command centers in them with IR long-range camera systems. I need flights for these. I have veterans knocking down the door more than qualified to do this job and totally vetted that need flights to Africa. Um, it, it'll cost us, it costs us about, what is it? $80,000 a year to deploy a veteran. Everything that goes into it. Uh, we need vehicles. We need side-by-sides, four wheelers. Um, this terrain is no joke. It is no joke to drive on to. Um, but I've, I value our organization, especially the case study of our organization and our ability to operate similarly to the Marine Corps in in that we do the most with the least. Okay. So I'm looking – I have up behind you right here. I wanted to make sure we had this as context too. So the first map we're looking at, and I'll put this in the corner, is the status of African elephants. And I believe what this one shows is the different hotspots of where elephants are living. In Africa, right? It looks about right to you. Um, what? No, because South Africa has a ton of elephants. Yeah, okay. we, like it, we honestly, South Africa probably has too many elephants. Right okay, now. so let's see. Hold on, maps of elephants, Africa, where they live. I, I was there. It was. There. Oh, it was. I which, mean, it's all over. Which one? It's well, no, it's not, but it's it's right there in that. And that's where a lot of them actually are in South yeah. Africa. Now, okay. we, we've been asked to put a team in Kenya again. And, you know, that's, I mean, look at East Africa. Yeah, right there. Yep. Okay, so that's elephants. Over here, we have two maps. We have the white rhino. And does that look about right that most of them are now, I was going to say, they're up here and there too, right? Uh, so, so I think um, Kenya has a very small population, but they are focusing now on, on re- uh, distributing rhinos in Kenya, Tanzania. The only place um, that they have rhinos that I know about and I've ever seen them in uh, Tanzania. 
Tanzania, I should say, is the Ngorongoro Crater, which is a World Heritage Site, very small park, very highly secured. They have the most rangers per acre or per uh, hectare than any other place in Africa. So that's good. Yeah, it's good. Right. It's good. Um, but the only reason why they have that many rangers is because they have that World Heritage title, so they automatically get international funding for it. Got it. Okay. This map right here now is the black rhino. And then I imagine the white rhino map is somewhat similar with where they where they're distributed. Um this is a this is a historical map of where they were distributed. So now they're pretty much all pushed to the south. Yeah, they're right going to be in the very southern hemisphere of of um Africa. So South Africa, Namibia, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Mozambique and is pretty much I mean totally devastated. Is there a problem though? I'm just thinking about this out loud. Is there a problem ecologically? I don't know if that's a word. Long term, where countries that have where the environment has consisted of having rhinos and elephants in the past, now through redistribution, through the poaching and moving some rhinos around and stuff, if they don't have them, the, everything will change about the environment because they're a part of the food chain. You know, they're a part of the well, structure. Some biologists may disagree with this, but they don't actually have a natural-born predator. Um, you know, an elephant can absolutely wreck anything that it wants. That's the true king of the jungle, at least in Africa. Um, but yeah, here's the thing. An ecosystem doesn't just operate with the animals. It's the flora and the fauna. So the plants matter too. They're critical. Right. So like land restoration is big for us because our host reserve is taking old pineapple fields, restoring the land, but before they can put more you know, animals on the land, that land has to be able to hold that amount of animals. So there's so much more that goes into this. But if you, if black rhinos go extinct, the food that they eat, the shrubbery, the, th the thorny bushes um, will overtake, you know, the ecosystem. Right. So then no sun gets to the dirt and then no grass grows. And then you lose that beautiful savanna grass and, you know, it goes on and on. Every single species plays a role in an ecosystem, including humans, except we're destroying it. You know, Right. So the middle of this map right here then, where you see the black line, I'll have that still in the corner, but where you see the black line, where now I know there aren't a lot of black rhinos because they're taking them all south and redistributing them. Like, isn't the shrubbery and therefore the ecosystem having big problems there already? That's the Congo. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't see the names of countries, but I'll, the Congo I'll trust and you on chat in there. Yeah, it's just the Congo is mostly rainforest, so I think that it's never been a historical habitat for like white rhino, like you said, are grazers, so they prefer open fields, savanna type uh, places to live. But Congo's rainforest, so I don't think that you're going to find big big herbivores there. Okay, so the bottom line, just easy takeaway: we're not as concerned about that in that type of area. That's why some of the redistribution is actually good. And now you're going to have, because again, the population of black rhinos got all the way down to like 5,000 or 6,000. Yeah. So there's not even that many. But it's okay to build them out in like South Africa where there's more of a plane set up. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes and sense. And listen, if they go extinct, it, it's it's not the number zero. There is a certain number, let's say, and I'm totally making this up because I don't have it on hand, but if the species gets down to, let's say, 2,000, that is enough 
to consider them potentially extinct because of their gestation periods and birth rates. So if, if they're being killed faster they, than they can give birth, that is a huge, huge problem. That is an international emergency. Shit. Because the other thing, listening to you talk, I almost smile because it's like so much less. But we see the landmass, even in just South Africa, that you're covering. And like you talk about it, like, man, it'd be great if we could get this. And you're asking me for six trucks and 20 people. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you have to start somewhere. I know, and, and I appreciate that a lot. But I'm saying, like, this doesn't seem that hard to get you that. Like, we should, like, we should be able to get you a lot more. You know, if people could get behind this and see what you guys are doing, why not have 20 man teams with six vehicles spread out all over the place? Why not have it in every one of the countries I'm looking at where there's a where there is a a presence of these creatures who are being attacked. The problem is that none of this is one size fits all. So, you know, the problems that you're having in South Africa are uniquely distinct from the problems that you're having in Zimbabwe, which are uniquely distinct from the problems that you're having in the Congo. So every problem that we're looking at has to be evaluated and, and you have to understand your environment before you can hope to impact it. So, you know, if it was as easy as shipping, you know, a container full of guys with guns, then yeah, we'd be made in the shade. But realistically, this is, you know, we're we're struggling through years of hard-fought, on-the-job experience, and we're understanding, you know, we're bringing our skills that we have as American soldiers and Marines to a problem that is uniquely different, but at the same time, there are a lot of similarities. It's just understanding how we fit into this problem and, and what the potential solutions are. But it's so complicated every time that you really have to go and evaluate before you can make mm-hmm. a dedication and, and say, we're committing to this right now because we understand the problem and have the means and, and opportunity to, to help make a, a difference here. But right. Can't wait to have you on, too. It's been, it's been great. This is, this is interesting today. I've never done it like this, and when we're able to get to another studio, we'll have we'll have the three mic, three, four mic set up, so we'll be able to just sit you in here as well on some of these. But as far as, you know, where you guys stand with funding right now, like what – are you allowed to say what kind of operating expenses you have? Oh, yeah. That's, okay. But we're, we're – uh... A registered 501c3 organization since 2014. We also have a South African nonprofit status working on Europe. Um, for us, we're at a million dollar budget a year, and That's we didn't it. even meet that. I think last year we're at 700 something. That's thousand. it. Yeah, but guess That's what? Guess what? We're still on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, we've That's... been running with the same Toyota four tuners, which are like forerunners that we Americanize with good tire suspension, communication system. We've been running on those since. Since 2016, those vehicles had a a lifespan in reality when we got them, maybe three years. Wow. But we did what we could do. They're literally duct taped together. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, the panels, they're not the land cruisers. We need land cruisers. Those suckers are expensive. That's what I'm saying. Like, you guys have had all these crazy great results with so little. Yeah. I mean, this is not like, you know, this is something that, a few very wealthy people could snap their fingers. Pretend, I'm talking like the wealthiest of the wealthiest could snap their fingers and like we could really get moving here. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. You know, the a lot of the money, get, and there are a lot of great organizations. Anybody that's dedicated to saving wildlife, I have utmost respect for. But there are a lot of organizations that are failing and refuse to change, and they're the ones that are showing the poaching incidents, which means they're getting the money. You know, there are other, you know, it's it's tugging at the emotions. And, you know, if we're not showing dead rhinos or we don't have, you know, a whole reserve of baby animals for people to come and, you know, to doing that volunteerism stuff, then, you know, that's a huge fundraising pivot. But there's a reason why those babies are there. And there's a reason why those animals are dead and ours aren't. Right. Never. Security is a thankless job. Yeah. It really is. It, when when nothing's going wrong, you're paying way too much for it. And when something does go wrong, it's like you guys have been fucking up this entire time. Yeah. It's, right. <laughs> yeah. It's um So that's you know, that's a fundraising battle that we face. And that's why, you know, spreading awareness about our successes and you know, the collaborations that we have and, and using them as an example and, and honestly a you know, kind of a, a pioneer in conservation is important. You guys also have, as far as like legitimacy of backing, your board is incredible. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the people you have on it. So can we talk about some of the people who are on that and all they do for it and shine a light on that? Because when we're going through people stepping up who have power and, and ha- have made something of themselves in life, your board is a phenomenal place to start because mm-hmm. they put their money where their mouth is. And, and it seems like they're also like... You guys seem to operate very much as a family in that way, and the board seems to be a, a big part of that, which is really, really cool. I had never met Jason Flom. When he heard about us when we were in Tanzania, uh, I all of a sudden get a, an email alert. There's a $10,000 donation, and I'm like, whoa, holy hell. I thought like at the time I was like 500 bucks. Man, that's <laughs> awesome. $10,000. i have never even met this guy. So I had to come back to the States. I had this terrible spider bite on my foot. And the hospital was like, hey, we, we can't help you with that. You need to go. Or you're, we're going to cut your foot off or your leg. Oh, Jesus. So I come back to the States. While I'm um, you know taking care of that, I met up with Jason for lunch. And he just clicked. That guy does so much good for so many people. And um, he continued to donate. I mean, he's over time donated. He's our top donor of all time. But he's not just a donor. I mean, he came out to see it. Right, so he could get all the way behind it, and that's what he does. He's the he's one of the original guys on the Innocence Project. Yep. I believe he's chairman of the board of that. Right? You know, I don't know if he's chairman anymore, but he it's possible. I'd have to look. But yes, he's done he, amazing work. With oh that. yeah, and that's incredible. He gets you know these um, you know falsely accused and convicted individuals of serious crimes, murder, rape, you name it, and goes in. They use forensics and science to prove that that's wrong due to corruption. Um, you know, in certain agencies and um, it gets them out of prison and gives them their life back. It's unbelievable. The guy man. fights mercilessly for the, the well-being of others. You you really can't find a more selfless person. Um, Jason Flom is an amazing human being. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, Peter Morton, um, the founder of, of Hard Rock, is, is on mm. our board, arguably one of the greatest businessmen of our, our generation. Another amazing guy, and you know it's it's is crazy. More than the steakhouse too. His father, yes. Wow. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. A lot of stories over there. Yeah. I'll but, bet. Um, but now he's he's an amazing human being. He found us through Jason, 
and was like, this is this what an amazing concept because he's an innovator, you know? Right. And in reality, Vetpal is an innovative idea. It's putting, you know, fixing so many different issues and, you know, bringing them together. But um, he's been fully supportive. And I was like, I'm going to take a shot here and we're going to invite him to be on the board. And uh, but I didn't have any expectations. He goes, is Jason on your board? I said, yep. And he goes, I'll be on your board. I'm oh, like, wow. holy hell. Like, that's the effect. Like, man. how just humbling, you know, for somebody like that to get behind this mission. Everybody on our, we have Helena Christensen now. She came out to see it. The model? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Helena's amazing. That's amazing awesome. human being. Such a beautiful person. Um, yeah, her and, and Mingus, her son, came out, and uh, oh yeah, it was fun. Yeah. She's a trip too. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, because you guys have like an enormous, as far as like names behind this, supporting in in a border ambassador capacity. It's not two people. You yeah, know, and they've stepped up for us. And now you know we need we need other people. You know, hey, listen, you may not know me, you may not know Justin or the other team members, you may not know, you know, a veteran. Which is pretty hard to find, but um, look at who's behind this. This is serious. If they think it's serious, then help us out. Join us. Yeah, like, I, I might have been saying this to you earlier, but I thought the email was fake at first because I looked at the link and I'm like, Jason fucking Flom is the chairman of this. All right, th- this is there's a mistake here. And then he's like, No, mate, I'm a fun. I was like, Wow, thanks. But yeah, man, it's it, it's it's pretty cool stuff. I I, I guess the the other thing that people are really wondering is like, is what you is the main thing that you can get from people right now? Quite literally, funding. You know, like donations out there for people listening right now. Like, is there a way that they can just donate five, ten, fifteen bucks? Absolutely. Whatever? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the biggest help. Like, oh adding yeah, that up. If every person on our on our Instagram or Facebook donated ten dollars, I mean, we would be over the top. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to follow, you know, a nonprofit. And if you can't donate, that's fine. Share it. Spread awareness for what we do. Be an advocate for us. Mm. Um, I don't care what it is. If If you're a subject matter expert in something in life, I will find a way. We will find a way to apply it to what we do for the benefit of what we do. Like, I don't care what it is. Yeah, I don't even mean to say this, like, callously, but if that's if that's a simple solution like yeah let's get some dollars in this yeah. here's what we do you're putting it out there like it's very clear what's going on the people who are involved are they check all the boxes too mm-hmm. this is really legit organization yeah. then i think that's that's great because it's almost like we can root for it from afar too you know yeah. living here in america it's like you guys are out there on the front lines handling business you love doing it and like our money can actually go towards that and you're operating on clearly like budget's not big you yeah know, we'll, we we'll do the help. dirty work we'll do the we'll do the dirty work so that you don't have to just get behind us we don't do this for money we don't do this for ego we do this we do do this selfishly in that it you know what we feel good and we have a purpose and that's okay but we do this for the right reasons and like i said man we're just a handful of guys and a population of eight billion so we're expendable and we'll take that chance just like we did more well, you you have put it forward, my friend. I I think there's a lot of podcasts in the future to come. We'll we'll bring some of your guys on and everything. I'm looking yeah. forward to that. And actually, before we go, we have Paul outside. He was in the studio for a minute, and I think he's I think he's working on a few <laughs> things out there. But he 
his whole thing is so interesting how you two came together because you didn't know each other. You just sent him a DM or something like that. Yeah, right? he's got a huge following. I saw him on like every morning show and I didn't know that there were fires in the rainforest. He does this video just basically saying, wake up, pay attention. And he's in the fires, yeah. literally in there. And he's about to go leave to go protect against wildfire season out there. The guy's a badass. Yeah. So I reached out to him and I'm like, dude, like this guy is my type of people. And I was like, hey, brother, I, I really appreciate what you do. Like, would love to connect with you sometime. And maybe there's a way that we can support. Maybe there's gear donations or, you know, we do teach some some things that may apply. And if we can sponsor some training. And I was blown away when he responded, like, quickly, too. Because I saw that he followed Vetpaw. That blew my he mind. He was a fan. And then he responded to me and my personal DMs. Like, nah, he's a humble uh, dude. And he's totally psycho. Like, screwing around with, with anacondas yeah take a can, look at him on youtube you can pay me enough money to do that yeah it's it's he's got like tarzan it's yeah, it, it, yeah. it's nuts but to me it's it especially meeting you in person for the first time and it was the two of you like going going to get a beer last night it is so effective from like the outsider like me sitting there for the first time and hearing both of you because you are two different organizations both focus on conservation in different ways, in different types of environments on two full continents, South America in his case with the Amazon and Africa in your case. And that is some powerful shit. Like I'm just speaking from my chair. I'm like, you guys should go everywhere together because now you guys are ambassadors for each other's organizations officially, right? Yeah. Well, I, he is for ours. I'm still waiting. Bro. Oh, you're still waiting on your invite? No, no, no. Fuck you, we're Paul. stronger together. I know. <laughs> Jesus, man. You believe that guy? Um, no, we're stronger together than we are apart, and that goes with any conservationist. We'll work with anybody and everybody. You got to have the right values, dedication, and you're good people to us. Oh, that's awesome. And yeah. like I said, we'll do a podcast with him as well. I'm looking forward cool. to that. That'll be really good. But I love what you're doing. I love that we could give this a platform here. I look forward to doing it again. In the meantime, where can people make the donations? On vetpaul.org directly? Vetpaul.org. Um, on our donate page, there are uh, th- there's uh, an address to send a check to, PayPal. Um, there's ways you can donate stock. You can um, put us in your, your will. Um, anything, I'm telling you, gear, binoculars, uh, you name it, outdoor gear. If that's all that you have and you're not using it and it's in your garage, it's in decent oh, condition. Oh, that's huge. Dude, okay. we, can, we can donate that to a park ranger or shoot. I mean, some of our guys need stuff. Do you guys have a place for something like that that's really specific? Do you have a, a, a an address in America where they can send that, where you take care of the rest? So, sure. So, usually what we do is you email us at info at vetpaul.org because if we just put the address, some, you know, we got, we got a lot of, got a lot of, well-intended veterans, but they may give us their boot camp boots that, you know, smell or, right. you know, or tore up. So we just got to make sure that it's decent gear first. Um, but that doesn't take much to, okay. to be decent. All right. So, so info at vetpaul.org. Yep. I can email that. Tell yep. more. And then I want to make sure we hit everything. You got the Instagram. Is that at vetpaul? At vetpaul, Twitter, Facebook, everything is vetpaul. Content's um, great, by the way. The videos are amazing. Thanks. Yeah, Tig's killing it. So are the guys on the ground. So, so go follow them there. And then that has all the links, too, where yep. they can go donate. And if you want to come visit in Africa, there's a sign-up website, Ecotourism. Pay a very good price to come out to Africa, and all that money goes back into our operations. 
oh wow so you guys sponsor like some tours too oh yeah you're coming out you're coming out we're gonna do a podcast out there you gotta you gotta get me out of here but yeah yeah, no no we're we're gonna do that we'll do it that's yeah. that's on my I told you that's on my bucket list like to do the African safari. It's a, All right, well, it's amazing. It's an expectation now. So yeah, Paul wants me to go up in the fucking trees in the Amazon. I'm like, eh. Well, you the saw heights that there, guy. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. You're talking like thousands of feet. Nah, I'm not a heights guy, but I'll go on the ground in the cool. Amazon. Cool. We'll, we'll figure that out. We'll too. keep you on the ground in Africa. Okay. Cool. We'll have a good time. But listen, thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate this. Everyone has all the links of where to go. We'll do some more content on this in the future, and I'm, I'm really glad we got this in today. Thanks, brother. We appreciate you, man. You're part of the family now. so Love it, and thank you for everything you do as well. This is, this is a really cool thing you're doing for the world. Thanks, man. All right, everybody else, you know what it is. Give it a thought. Get back to it. Peace. <laughs>